Piece of modern horror, directed by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson and Shelley Duvall, rated R. Opens Friday, June 13. Check newspapers for local listings. We should put out. Um, we should do. We should welcome because this is this is. Uh, we should should we should we give an intro to this? Should we say to like, the um, you know, because this is for the the Patreon people. It's like they bought the class. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Welcome to the very first Patreon exclusive episode of Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers. Ooh. I am your uh, shaggy host, Jay Blake Fischera, and of course, with me as always, is the, uh, his hair is very puffy these days, <laughs> Dion yeah. Baya. I'm here. It's very puffy. My rolls are starting to come out as we play with our rolls, our long hair, our COVID hair. This is the first... 2020 this is uh october 2020 and this is coming out with halloween so Our special uh, halloween exclusive but since we already did yeah. all the halloween movies that are carpenter related we decided to go with a different carpenter film for this halloween but uh, yeah. i feel like it's very halloweeny in its own way you know the the oral ghost story type oh, yeah. uh, thing, you know, we can get into some of that, but uh, sure, it's uh, I think it's very of the season. Yeah, and this is for people who also don't. Um, not all the regular peeps are going to be hearing this. Only the uh, exclusive only six, gold club members. <laughs> only all sixteen of you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but soon there'll be there'll be scores and tens of people. Soon there'll be so almost got, twenty. Yes, my grandmother downloaded this three times by accident. <laughs> so there we are. This is really fun. So you guys are part of like an so, exclusive. Club. Yeah, this is almost and we're, like and we're a, talking a very pri- you. a very private sleepover. Yeah, this is like the uh, we were having a birthday party in class, and then we only invited half the class. One of those things, you know. And Blake just got like a Nintendo, so this is going to yeah. be fun. We'll have to see which one of you uh, falls asleep first, or which one of you starts crying and calls your parents to pick you up <laughs> before yeah. the night is through. 
and we, we won't write on you or anything like that. We won't do anything as mean as that. We'll just take pictures and stuff. I knew a kid back in seventh grade. Uh, he went and slept over at this other kid's house, uh, and weeks later, he found out that they put something in his ear when he was sleeping. I, f- I forgot what they put in his ear. I want to say like a tablet or a pill or something. And then they were doing that to mess with him. And then the kid didn't wake up, you know, and then they're like, okay. And then they went to sleep. And then they, he, the kid woke up the next day. And then like, I forget how long it was, but it, it went an, an, a couple of days went by or a, a period of time went by. He was having problems with the ear <laughs> and then he had to bring to a, Thanks. He had to go to hospital, <laughs> and then then it was because they had put something, and they were like, "Oh my god!" It was you know, it was an innocent prank gone awry, and now there's a horror those, movie they about put it. Put one of those ear things in from Wrath of Khan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> ah! Like Paul Winfield. Ah! And then now that's a horror movie. You know, what did you put in my the ear? <laughs> it came from within the ear. It was out to play. So. um yeah, a lot of horror stories from from uh, sleepovers, but this is a fun sleepover. Yes, uh, we're gonna watch. We a got spooky movie, and then we're yeah, we're in talk about it. We're in Blake's basement, and uh, we've got everything all ready. We got all the John Carpenter candles out, the scented candles, and uh, you know we've got our yoga mats because we're sitting Indian style on the ground. <laughs> Blake's parents, uh, they took the carpet out on the floor, so now it's just hard laminate. So we have to just... <laughs> well, you know. Yeah, what can you do? It was getting so. dusty. It was an old carpet. Anyway, it's a Yeah, late. you know, it's been around. I feel like this is a late one for us. Yeah, we had already done... Um, we've. This is going to come out prior to our regular Halloween episode. Do we get to tell the, the, the patron people? Should we tell them what is they're going to sure. be hearing they, they on the regular do. site? They get to know uh, ahead of time anyway, so we can tell them extra ahead of time. Yeah, so we did Poltergeist, 1982's Poltergeist, uh, this uh, month on the October 2020 Halloween. And uh, Blake and I did that. We did that last night. Yeah, Blake and I, we did a (laughs) two-nighter. This week. And, I, and I've been just walking around in my um, onesie all day in Blake's parents' house, you know. Excuse me, making cups of coffee and going to stinking the bathroom up. So, so, I'm so sorry. Do you have any more toilet paper? So with, sorry. With the feet on your, on your yeah. onesie. Or, or we're, clogging, we're clogging toilets up. Remember that time you clogged that toilet and it was near where I live now? And me and the other kid that we know from college, we drove around, we drove around like six hours trying to find a plunger. And we couldn't find a plunger. We were filming in somebody's apartment over here. I don't and then remember you the, that. You were the DP. It was Max's uh, apartment. Was it Max? Yeah, no, the- it was. You were shooting it. It was your movie at Max's apartment because that's he lives. Used he used to live a block away from where I live now, which is funny because you know I knew the neighborhood back then when we shot your movie here. Yeah, and then you know what is that? And then thirteen years later, I ended up moving into the neighborhood. So. You you were we were using his apartment and then and I was used the one the that clogged his toilet. I remember. I mean, this is gonna, oh no, maybe it wasn't you. I was going to say maybe it was the other kid. Give me a, a bad reputation because I also because <laughs> yeah. I did clog Felicito's mom's parents' toilet. 
Jeez, you got a bad rep. I thought that that had happened, and then you um, you sent me and the other one out, and we were looking, and we went, we drove all around the Cross County Mall. We went up Central Park Avenue. We went almost went, went as far as Candlelight, and nobody had a, a plunger. We finally found a plunger. Someplace. I kind of recall that it happened. I just don't remember if it was me. I do remember specifically Felicito's parents. We were shooting Felicito's film, the the Roman, the Roman soldier, and uh, right, and. He and I was the director of photography on that film. What was that girl's name? Remember her? That was in um, Only You. She was the young Marissa Tomei. Yeah, I don't remember what her. She name was in my Tammy, movie. I should Tammy remember Menoff. her. There you go. Yeah, I don't remember it. But <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it slipped into my head right as I was saying. I yeah. don't remember it. She was in my. She was in my movie too. She was the uh, the wife of the the jeweler who gets killed in the movie. Uh, yes, Tammy Minoff. God bless her. I think she lives in L.A. now. And, uh, um, she's an actress. But the 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 Felicito toilet story is horrifying. I, the worst like flush pressure I've ever. Well, we're up in Manpac. Yeah, that was. So we're 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 like Upper Westchester, about I don't know, forty five minutes from New York City at his parents' house, and we're shooting his film. I just broke my ankle. I was the audio guy, so I'm I'm walking around on crutches with a, a Nagra and, and a freaking boom pole and stuff, and then Blake's shooting the movie. He's the DP on it, and, and we uh, and Phil we and took I, over the house. And Phil and I lived together in a house in Portchester at that time. So, and since you I was guys were living together already, by a, a th- college, senior year th- of college, yeah, senior year is when I moved into that house. Oh, okay. And then the year after. Or actually, the end of that year was when John Lloyd Young moved in. Um, T- TV ha- and Broadway's John Lloyd Young. There was uh, four people. It was a four-person house. Anyway, so uh, Phil I have and one I- of the most embarrassing John Lloyd Young stories <laughs> that I can't publicly share without his consent. Uh, Blake knows what it is, but it was hilarious. Yeah. His girlfriend came home and, what are you doing? I'm like, I- they told... <laughs> I'm going to leave. And it was not... a. Doesn't sound as dirty. We as may that. have told. We're just embarrassed. We may have told that story already. <laughs> I I kind of uh, hinted at it, uh, but anyway. So um, Wait, so because you and I Phil. Was, because I was the director of photography, because Phil and I lived together, and he was the director, we would get to the set early before everybody, and like I would start working on the lights and all that stuff. And so we the got sets to his, like his couch, and so we got to his parents' house, and uh, he left to go pick up the actors at the train station. And I seized the opportunity to relieve myself. <laughs> or his parents' home? Because sometimes we his were shooting mom around was his home. dad. His dad was at work. Yeah. And, God bless uh, his dad. We love his father. And I uh, went to the bathroom, and I knew it was a bad flush. Like, I knew that the, there was no well, water Well, that was the reason why I, I brought that up was, okay, so where they lived, it, it was kind of like on a lake. It was kind of... It was suburbia getting into rural. So for all we know, they could have had a, a septic system on that block or something. You know, so, you know, it. when you get into septic systems, you may get into do- dodgy pressure. You, you don't got the city pumping, you know. Yeah. So, the, so you I've can never, tell as soon as it was like, it didn't even go down. It just I've started to turn. I've never had a problem since I've lived in New York City. It's like it'll the flush will suck oh, yeah. it right out of your butt. It's so it, <laughs> It'll take your, your ring off, too, if you're too close. you lose your wedding ring. <laughs> If you don't push your pants far enough down your legs, it'll just rip the pants right off your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta hold on. So knowing, knowing that this was a dangerous proposition, 
to to go to the bathroom in this uh, at this house. I didn't even get I mean, all. You the think way. nothing of it, you know. I sat down. I didn't even get it all out. I did like the first first leg of the of the trip. <laughs> The lock leg, and then I did like, and then I did a, a courtesy. courtesy flush. And like I yeah, wasn't yeah. even done yet. I wasn't even done pushing. But I was like, okay, I'm gonna yeah. flush this. And <laughs> it's gonna be a long one. And you uh, can see that you can see the hazard lights from here. <laughs> I was like, this is gonna, uh, you know, I'm gonna. It's gonna be a lot of flushes. I'm gonna let every every wipe is getting a flush. I didn't even get to wipe because yeah, his mom is his mom is on the other in side the of the kitchen. wall, probably in the kitchen. Yeah, I'm so, <laughs> making like breakfast, on the other side of the coffee wall. on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You can hear her bumping around, just walking around, listening to like AM radio. You know? So anyway, like I said, I didn't even, I wasn't even, it wasn't even all out yet, but I did a flush. So then, okay, I'm, I flushed. I'm waiting a couple oh. of minutes and all of a sudden I feel water on my cheeks. Oh, come on. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> I'm like, oh shit. <laughs> I got up and it was fucking the water was up to the brim, it got clogged. And uh I tried to wipe up best I could and put it in there. And meanwhile the- their their bathroom the the carpet is like two inches of that real thick shag. You know, so you're like, oh my god, <laughs> that's the bath mat. <laughs> Luckily it didn't <laughs> So overflow. if anything got on there it'd be terrible. Luckily it didn't overflow, but it so yeah. I had to clean up best I could, pull my pants up, and walk into uh, the kitchen and ask Mrs. Aceto if there was a... Of course, I looked in the bathroom if there was a plunger. There was no plunger. So I walked you into... found the, everything else. But I walked into the kitchen and I asked Mrs. Aceto, do you guys have a plunger? And she, didn't even, she just walked past me into the bathroom and looked. And she's like, oh... <laughs> No, 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 don't, don't, don't. Uh, and I don't know. She called Mr. Aceto. Oh, no. At work. He was, so he was home? Or did, oh, she, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you're like, I still got to go. And I think I guess it, it scared it out of you. It by that was point. like in the, he told her where it was. And uh, she went into the bathroom and I think she was going to do it. I was like, no, 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 I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And, uh, so then, and I'm waiting for, you know, Tammy and John and everybody to start showing up at this point. <laughs> yeah, John Lloyd Young was in the movie. That's how we met John, right? Yeah. John was in that movie. So John and Tammy are coming from this train, and uh, I had to have been there that day because I was audio. Maybe I was driving up. Yeah, you so guys I felt just, like I drove a lot. It's just like not everybody was there yet. So I'm just waiting yeah. for, like, everybody to show up. With a clogged toilet and me, like, you know, knee deep in my shirt. And I used to wear, like, a shirt and tie, you know, yeah. when we shot. And you got like, your, your fisherman trousers on now up to your, <laughs> up to your nipples, you know. Got my sleeves rolled up. I'm in there. So yeah. I'm hitting the microphone. I'm getting very... Yeah, every day on in. set, Blake, that was that was Blake's, um, Blake's uh, uh, his own thing was, uh, what do you call that? His uh, uniform was he wore a shirt and tie. He'd wear a tie. And, uh... Luckily, I got it all taken care of before everybody showed up. But uh, it was uh, one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. And then uh, I remember the next day we had a a girl worked on that film on the set that we knew, um, and she had to use the bathroom the next day, and I also had to use the bathroom. And 
I said, you don't want to use that bathroom. <laughs> and I was like, it'll get clogged. So uh, we made uh, some listeners know Chris Funderburg. We made Chris Funderburg uh, of Blue Smoke fame, me and this girl, drive us around town looking for a public bathroom so that we could go to the bathroom. And we ended up going to a Jewish synagogue <laughs> and, walked, and just walked in and found the bathrooms and uh we're leaving was it saturday and then then went back to this and then went back to the set boy those were the days clogging toilets a lot of of it seems like we clogged a lot of toilets clogged a lot of toilets we were in college what we were eating was not good i i broke my ankle and that that took me an extra uh jesus two to three months to fix because I was just walking on it. We were shooting Phil's movie out on the rocks on that lake and I'm walking on one rocks holding the Nagra and the boom. And maybe um, Boom operator. Maybe this will be the exclusives now. Well, for every month, we'll just do an exclusive for Patreon where we talk about when we clogged a toilet. Yeah. And see how um, many. You, but you don't remember you clogging any like at my parents' house or anything. No, I remember I, you getting up and shotgunning coffee with my dad while watching like Lion Nature specials <laughs> in Africa. Well, I, you guys weren't in Africa. You watched <laughs> ones that took place in Africa. Honestly, I could probably count on one hand the amount of times I've clogged a toilet. Um, that's why I, I, I'm not positive I was the one that did it in your story. Maybe it was someone else, but maybe it was me. Oh. I, don't, I don't know. Because uh, I remember what I was sent out. We were sent out, and I, I thought it was because uh, maybe it was somebody else. I don't, but I, that was the story, and then we went. So that's funny now, because that's like that building is where my dentist is. And I was like, oh, that, you know, that was, what, 20 years ago, maybe, yeah. that we were doing that? So it's just funny when you, 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 you don't realize how something's going to play in. You know, to where you live or whatever. Now it's all it's all connected, in my opinion. But um, so that was that was a fun time. I don't remember any. I feel like we yeah maybe we should start coming up with some crazy college stories, like the time I shotgun projectile vomited <laughs> in uh, Josh Masugi's bathroom. Uh, I think we've told that. No, we've told we that may story have told before. That story. I got so hammered because they showed Carpenter's The Thing. Remember, we got a widescreen anamorphic print. Our teacher. That was the night Mike Morona came back from shooting. The um the in New Jersey he was shooting the uh, um what do you call those commercials Ameritrade Ameritrade the Ameritrade he became the Ameritrade spokesman for a minute and was on Leno it was uh, at the Clinton White House he did like a goodbye uh, spoof a sketch with Clinton in the White in the Oval Office uh, but I remember he got back and he showed up late he was like remember we all went outside to smoke before the movie started in the break and he was telling me out there that he just got back and then I said well me and Blake might be going over to our friend Adam's house to have a have a cocktail. Would you like to come? And he didn't want to. But then you and, and I, after the movie, yeah, went and that hammered. And that cocktail, and it'll be you and me splitting a bottle of Jack. Uh, Jack, yeah. <laughs> and then we ran out of a mixer. In a half an hour. Yeah, we, we ran. There was no mixers. So Blake and I, and then I was courting a girl at the time, and I, that that's the worst thing is that I we were every time I'd go to the bathroom, <laughs> I'd see her in the hall, and I would uh, say, hey, let's meet later on, okay? We're going back to the new. But then what happened was you and I got so hammered that um, when we, you you helped me walk back to the new, we got back to the new, and then I forgot I was supposed to meet this girl outside on, like, those benches. So I think I went out there once, and then I was like, I'll be right back. And then I never, I never went back out because I ended up throwing up and passing out in the bathroom. Uh, we'll so sub- there's a lot of after that, that story. Well, she we'll never save that story um, she, for another time. 
she I never never gave me the time of day again. Like I'd see her like walking around, and she'd be like, oh, and I was like, I'm sorry, I, I, I had vomit all over my my cargo pants. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't even remember that poor girl's name. Oh gosh, tragic. Um, but anyway, so um, we got a lot of things going on today. This is the first episode of the Patreon, <clears throat> Patreon, Patreon, um, <laughs> Patreon. Brought to you by. <laughs> Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers bring you Patreon. So we're doing the Patreon account, and we got The Fog, and then we've got it being a Carpenter movie. We've got it being a Halloween movie. Maybe it should be, it's a Halloween movie, it's a Carpenter movie. And then Blake's in on the podcast, too. So Blake's the walking encyclopedia brown of John uh, John C. Carpenter. Yeah. Seems like there's a lot of name. people that are these days. Oh. That's why I stick to guys like Clint Eastwood, you know, because who's going <laughs> to be... nobody cares about him except anymore. People, well, it's like people at my parents' age, you know, they're, they're all, yeah, now he's kind of marginalized. Well, so. I mean, you have to give me some credit in that there was at least a good 15 years there where nobody cared about him except for me. <laughs> Same with me, 15 years where I would only talk to my parents' generation about Clint Eastwood or people like that. Yeah, so... um but now everybody's it's it's like a, a opinion everyone's got one. So, well, I mean, I think that's kind of a good place to start in that I find the fog very interesting in that uh I mean my my relationship with Carpenter I think has probably been not my not my actual relationship but my relationship with his movies and my love for his his work has been probably has been documented on this podcast uh, in numerous episodes. Uh but the thing that I do th- find interesting is with this resurgence of Carpenter over the last, I don't know. I mean, it's been happening for a while, but when his music, when he started releasing music is when it seemed to really kick into overdrive, but with the internet and uh, social media and all this thing, there's been a kind of a a resurgence or a, a renaissance for all kinds of types of genre films and all types of things. And I think Carpenter has been, a bit at the forefront of that for a certain audience, for a certain section of the social media film lovers uh, around. And, you know, I point out to the people that, uh, especially the younger people that have, you know, come to uh, be huge Carpenter fans through this social media wave of, of support, that you know, it like it wasn't always like that. Like there wasn't Carpenter didn't always have this huge fan base, and I always point to the Fog as being the one where, like, when we were in college and even just out of college, uh, being a Carpenter fan, even Carpenter fans didn't really like the Fog very much. Like the Fog was a film that like nobody really liked. It was like at that point, it was before Ghosts of Mars and. Uh, even vampires, and I feel like the fog was widely, uh, as except for maybe Escape from L.A. and the misunderstood Memoirs of an Invisible Man, the fog was really thought of as being like his worst film. And that's interesting. There were people that really liked John Carpenter but didn't like the fog. But uh, since Price. then, over the last twenty years, and the support of for for John Carpenter being you know, gone, kicked into overdrive. And, you know, now there's a ton of people that are writing books about John Carpenter and 
doing podcasts about John Carpenter and people talking about John Carpenter, like The Fog, things like The Fog and They Live and Prince of Darkness, some of these films that, you know, I always loved and, and you know, some of those like you always been a big supporter for, uh, they've, they're now thought of as being like masterpieces. And it's been a very interesting, it's been very interesting watching that happen for, yeah. uh, uh, John Carpenter. I mean, he's, he's, I would say he's arguably more famous, more loved now than he probably ever was. And he hasn't made a movie in at least 10 years, <laughs> you know, and, uh, it's interesting. And I, I, that's just one of the fog has always stuck out in my head because I remember when I first saw the fog, which was probably the late nineties, I was kind of a late, that, was comp- that late. Yeah. The fog was a late one for me. Uh, I just remember talking to other people, we know some of which are like the guys from pink smoke and, uh, people didn't really like the fog then. And I feel like now people like the fog and I've always well, kind of liked know. it. I've always thought it was kind of, it was charming. It was a, and I've, I don't think it's one of his best movies. I think it's probably somewhere in the middle of the pack. If you're going to rate his movies, people have a, people have an agenda, Blake. But I've uh, always uh, I've always liked it for what it was, and uh, I think that's a good place to wrap it up. So thanks for this. <laughs> thanks very much for this exclusive toilet story and our summation of the fog on this edition. Catch next next time, part two of Patreon. Uh, so um, so far on this on Saturday night movie sleepovers, we've done. Uh, Assault on Precinct 13, Halloween, Halloween 2, Halloween 3, uh, Escape from New York, In the Mouth of Madness, Big Trouble in China, The Thing. Uh, uh, Maybe I just finished them all right there. That might have been. That might be it. We have yet to do this, which we're doing today. Uh, Memoirs, Ghost of Mars, um, Rio Bravo, Prince of Dark, the Rio Bravo, um, Dark Star. <laughs> we haven't done Rio Bravo. That's true. <laughs> Dirty Harry. We did do Dirty um, Harry. Uh, we did do Dirty Harry. Um, <coughs> uh, we've done uh, Starman. We haven't done. So we've done, I'd say, three quarters of the man's um, uh, yeah. compliment. At least half. I think we've probably done yeah. three quarters of the ones that we probably would consider doing. Yeah. Um, and I think we've, you know, you've been a good, strong proponent of that. And I'm like, sure. You know, I've always loved Carpenter. Carpenter has been with me since my early infancy. I, I talk about on the thing that I remember seeing the thing and being in kindergarten, looking at the windows, thinking that that was the guy's name. Maybe it's going to turn into a window. And that's like, you know, how old are you in kindergarten? And then the early movies for me, I was a late bloomer to Halloween. Not that I didn't see it. I just hadn't gotten to it. Um but I, the fog, Christine, and the thing were, hu- and Escape from New York were huge elements of my early childhood. Yeah. You know, the Escape from New York box you'd see on uh, at Pathmark or the the, the food store, or the supermarket, and then Christine, the fog, uh, and even Assault on Precinct Thirteen as well. They were all in rotation when I, we were little. So I remember then cut to freshman year of college. We were. Um, Jesus, it was only two months in, three months in, maybe even less. It could have been a month into college, and I went home for a weekend with the girl I was dating, and and at night we were 
I turned on the TV and the thing was on and I watched the thing and I got all caught up and I jumped at one of the scares and then I came back that weekend and was saying to you like, yo, you remember the thing? We should get that and watch that. And then like the next week we went to Now Implosion and we were looking for, you were looking for Clapton stuff. I was looking for Doors stuff and I found the thing and I was like, hey, I'm, I bought it for like five ninety nine the VHS and we went back and we watched it and then we, I got proper back into Carpenter with yeah. stuff. And that's where it all took off for me. Yeah. Well, I think one of the reasons why, like, I've always wanted to pursue Carpenter on the show, um, not just because he's one of my favorite filmmakers, or at this point, probably my favorite filmmaker, but I feel like a lot of people of our generation, there are movies that we grew up with that, you know, were his. And uh, I think a lot of us remember, especially things like Escape from New York and Big Trouble in Little China and seems like a lot of people remember the Christine from that are you know our youths but uh so there's that and so I feel like he's a, a, a filmmaker that I think a lot of people can relate to in a nostalgic way from people our age but also because like his you know one of the one of the reasons one of the impetuses of us doing a show like this uh, about these kinds of movies and the concept of sleepovers. Uh, one of the things that drove that was my fond nostalgic memories of sleepovers. And John Carpenter's movies were very much tied to that, whether it was Prince of Darkness, uh, They Live, uh, and especially like In the Mouth of Madness, which I've written about in the intros now of both of my books was the experience of watching that movie because that sleepover in that movie like literally changed my life and I wouldn't have written a book like scored to death probably had I not seen that like in my mid teens at a at a sleepover so uh, and then you've met Carpenter you've interviewed Carpenter for for books you've met his son you're from you're yeah, but that all happened. Son. That's all happened since we started the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So that's the elevation of you, you know, being able to talk to these people. You know, talk, um, uh, Adrienne, we did that thing with a couple weeks ago. Remember that? Um, yeah, Escape before, from New York. Uh, um, the, that was the sci fi version, 80 sci fi doc. The, uh, the, uh, I forget what they're called. Yeah, but she was on at the beginning of that. <laughs> <laughs> and then we watch the movie. Everyone's asking her John Carpenter questions. I'm asking her Maud questions. I'm like, how is it working with B. Arthur? Um, but so you have a connection now since the, since the podcast started with now you, you got him, you interviewed him, what, twice or more for your books? And I interviewed him talked to Cody. a couple of times for the book. I've interviewed Cody a couple of times. I've gotten to know Cody, Cody. Uh, his son, and his and A.J. Barbeau's son, Cody, uh, pretty well. I wouldn't say we're friends, but, you know, he knows who I am. We're he actually helped me with um he helped me with the new book a little bit because I interviewed some Japanese composers for the new book and uh he helped with some of the Japanese to English translations actually. Because I, I was like do. That's I was awesome. like I was like, who do I know that's that speaks Japanese? And I said, Cody Carpenter does, so I emailed him and so he helped me with that stuff. Um and I've met Cody. Um and Daniel uh Davies who did the you know, who did those albums with uh, Cody and John, the Lost Themes albums. So, yeah, I mean, like, but a lot of that stems from my love for Carpenter, you know, my love for his and films. And you suggested the, 
then in his interview, in your interview, you suggest that he he go on a musical tour and write new material, and then six months later, he <laughs> went on tour and writing new material. Honestly, it happened. But uh, the fog, like I said, it was a film that originally originally financially did pretty well. It wasn't as big of a critical success of, as some of his other films at that time. But uh, he was coming off of Halloween, which was a huge uh, hit in that they made it for like three hundred dollars or $350,000 and it made millions of dollars. And even up until like into the 90s, it was the mo- considered the most successful independent film of all time. So he and uh, Deborah by... 1978, 79, uh, well, by, by 79, because the, the rise of the success of Halloween took a long time. But by the time 79 rolled around, he and Deborah Hill, Deborah Hill was uh, the well, co-writer and producer of Halloween. They had a lot of heat on them because they had made this film that cost nothing and it made a lot of money. And so it was a huge phenomenon. And that kind of thing was still fairly new. Uh, for the industry back then. You had Night of the Living Dead and Texas Chainsaw Massacre kind of did that. But Halloween being the one that made the most money <laughs> was, uh, it was like, oh, like these two kids, even though they were 30 when they made Halloween, uh, these two people, they were bank, they, they were considered bankable. So they ended up uh, signing a deal with a company called Avco Embassy, a two-picture deal. And the films that come out of that deal are The Fog and then Escape from New York, which we covered on the show. And I think we talk a little bit about the – obviously, we talk about the origin of that and how he actually started writing that in the 70s. Hmm. And uh, I find it's uh, The Fog's an interesting film in his catalog. Uh, when you look at Carpenter's catalog, there are films that like he wrote uh, and that he directed – and then there's films that he wrote as a job, like Halloween. Like, had he not been assigned the task of writing The Babysitter Murders, he probably yeah. never would have made a film like Halloween. You know, it wasn't... Well, it's like I, I didn't know he, he wrote uh, Eyes of Laura Mars, you know, on a, an idea of possibly directing that he would he just end up selling that, right? Yeah. Well, he went to the 70s. Most of his 70s output was actually scripts. He, and that's uh, crazy. What was, else did he write? He was basically a, a script writer in the 70s. Uh, and he did, obviously, he directed uh, Salt of Precinct 13, and then he directed Halloween. And then from that, he directed some TV movies like uh, some of watching and, me and Elvis. But yeah. uh, he wrote, uh, oh, there's a whole slew of them. He wrote, some of them got made, a lot of them didn't. Um, Didn't he write Beethoven in the? Uh, early there's 90s? always been a rumor that he wrote. Yeah, Beethoven, that he wrote the movie Beethoven. under a, a pseudonym. And had I had I been interviewing him about his movies and not his music, I would have asked him that question because that was always a rumor when you and I were <clears> in college <throat> that he wrote Beethoven, and I've never yeah. seen it. It was like it's like an urban legend that somehow got passed along. <laughs> yeah, but he wrote. Uh, What's his face told us? Eyes of, in that. Eyes of Laura Mars. He uh, yeah. he wrote uh, he wrote a western for John Wayne called I think it was called El Diablo that never got mm-hmm. made, but then it later got made in the nineties for television starring uh, Ricky Schroeder 
and I don't remember who the older actor was that would have played the John Wayne part, but he wrote a western. I want to say it's like Eric Roberts or somebody. I forget. I I, I forget when. Uh, he wrote Bad Moon Rising, which made was made into a film with Tommy Lee Jones. Um, it was a whole slew of movies, and some of them were scripts that he were was working on to direct, and uh, some of them never got made. So there was a whole. He was basically a screenwriter throughout the seventies, but uh, the success of Halloween got him the uh, couple of TV jobs. Uh, someone is watching me. Was where he met Adrian Barbeau. Because she's in that, she's not the she's like the a supporting actor in that, and uh, so he and Deborah signed this deal for two pictures, and also instantly during this time, he gets offered um, the thing, and he's developing the thing already by now, even though he's got this contract. Universal has uh, kind of tapped him for the thing at that point. There's also, um, you know, in research for this, I went back and I read a lot of older interviews from around the fog and back then it seems like they talked a lot about projects that much earlier than they talk about projects now because they're asking about stuff some of them got made some of them didn't but he's talking about uh, somehow you know so fog comes out in 80 so he's doing an interview in 1980 mm. to promote the fog and somebody asks him about star trek and i guess according to him he was offered the job of directing star trek the motion picture in 1976 and that film doesn't come out till and he said no. 79, and he turned it down. 79, right, yeah. And they asked him why. He's like, I just didn't think there was anything I could do with it. In one of the interviews, he uh, mentions that he recently had read a script for the movie Total Recall, and he thought it was awesome. Hmm. Um, but he didn't think he was going to direct it just because there were other projects that he was committed to. But he talked like... And that's a full 10 years before, because Total Recall is 1990. But we talk about that. Remember Dick Tracy was out? Remember in, I think, the late 70s, they were trying to get Dick Tracy made. Yeah. And then that didn't get made, you know, until, what, 1990 as well. That's crazy, though, to see all the stuff that never were to be, you know. Yeah. And then uh, into the 80s, you know, he was tapped. He was going to do Firestarter, and then the, the failure yeah. of The Thing kind of ruined that deal. He was going to do a lot of, a lot of those, a lot of movies. And he also talks about some movie that... Uh, <clears throat> he was very excited about that never got made that he equates to the final countdown. He's like, it's like the kind of oh. final countdown, but without, uh, without time travel. I think it was, I love the final countdown, but, uh, so I just think it's interesting that the first picture he does past Halloween after Halloween with like real independence. Cause like I said, Halloween was a, was a, uh, hired, he was a hired gun to make that movie specifically is that he chooses to do this, ghost story and uh well it's like they, 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 this is the first time that they're able to you know they they since he's such a hot commodity they're like go do something else and they're trying to figure out something that's going to be kind of comparable to, to you know do, a do-over of halloween like they love halloween so he's trying to figure out something that'll be you know yeah, but I also that it'll evoke the same box office, and you know. Yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, probably a horror movie was urged. Like he was probably like, you should make a horror movie. But you know, I think on the surface, it's weird that he, <clears throat> it's potentially could be viewed as weird that he makes this movie out of all the things he could have done. He makes this movie, but when you start to read a lot about John Carpenter, or even in talking with Cody, uh, you know, you come to realize that. A lot of guys of Carpenter's generation, and Carpenter certainly 
uh, is a perfect example of this. And you can you can put, you can put these pieces together from various interviews. The carpenter just like he grew up in the fifties, and as a kid, he just fucking loved like fifties sci-fi horror movies. You know, Cody told me like the one like, you know, I said to him like, when is there? When I uh, one of the times that I talked to him, I think for Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers in, in an interview that I did for him for this podcast, I said, "Well, what's you know what's like the guilty pleasure movie that John Carpenter watches?" And he said, uh, "Independence Day." <laughs> uh, and he said, "And if there's it's ever like a fifties, and, and yeah. if there's ever it's a fifties like sci-fi movie on, like we have to watch yeah. it." Um, and when you look at it that way, and you know, we last year for Halloween we did. Uh, Tales from the Crypt, Vault of Horror, and we also did Creep Show. You start to realize that also EC Comics was a big thing for the, his generation. These guys. So uh, in in that regard, it makes total sense that the Fog would be something that he would want to do, um, because it does. It plays on a number of like those sci-fi horror movies from the fifties, things like the uh, Trollenberg Terror. Beast uh, from 20,000 Fathoms, X the Unknown, The Crawling Eye. He's borrowing from all these movies to create uh, basically what ends up being like a Just Desserts EC comic style movie. Uh, so, you know, he this is his version of Creepshow, kind of. You know, like mm. Stephen King and, Cre- and Romero end up doing Creepshow a year or two later. But uh, Carpenter decides to tackle that kind of thing. Uh, before uh, before that. So in 1980, he's influenced by those sci-fi movies. He's also influenced by, I think it was with Assault in Precinct 13, he and Deborah Hill went to England for a film festival, and they went to visit Stonehenge. And at the time of the day that they went, there was this big fog bank that rolled in on the countryside. Yeah. It was uh, like near dusk. And... It just was very eerie in the way the light, the, the setting sun was hitting it and all that. He was just like, you know, a horror movie that, like, where the fog is a character would be really intense. Yeah, he's like, what's in that fog over there? And they're like, I don't know, because it looks so murky. And then that's a great, that's a great MacGuffin for, for what, could, you know, could be a great EC Comics horror movie. So he and Deborah Hill, uh, that's even before Halloween. They end up making Halloween. And then they uh, write and they produce The Fog. The Fog was made for reportedly a million dollars. It was his biggest film to date. It was considered his first Hollywood movie. And it's also his first fantasy movie. Because uh, Assault Precinct 13 obviously isn't really horror. It's got some horror tropes, uh, suspense and thrill, thriller type stuff. But that's kind of set in the real world with a very realistic, da- a real danger. Uh, uh, Halloween, though there are supernatural elements to the way Michael Myers is portrayed and the aspect of the bogeyman, really that's a thriller kind of movie. So uh, Fog is the first time he really ventures into the fantasy world and does something well, you know, we were just, totally supernatural. We were just doing, uh, as we just said, we we recorded Poltergeist last night and that's going to probably come out next week as in this coming out. And it's completely uh you know when we were having our donuts uh before doing this podcast it didn't occur to me that these movies are so alike and every time you make a list of the shining to changeling uh you know all the movies that were at the time influences a supernatural ghost story you forget about the fog you know and the fog has a lot of the same elements that ghost um uh, poltergeist has which is amazing the the two 
you know, uh, ritual and vengeance or getting a comeuppance, these spirits. Uh, and I think that the supernatural, that's a great, you know, slasher movies were on their eyes back then. And that's why I think some of those other movies like The Shining and stuff had it, were hits, the ones like Burnt Offerings, the ones that were good. But uh, it's just such a, 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 a primal idea, the supernatural movie. And I think it just hits everybody, especially something like this that you get set up the story. It's so, it's so such a rich and, uh, you know... Uh, you know everybody can identify with this i think this kind of a story yeah i mean there's that there's also the aspect of um because it, it it's fantasy although some of them are are based or inspired by reality things like amityville horror and uh even the changeling our massive three-hour episode of the changeling we talk a lot about of like the real life inspirations for that story even though a lot of them are kind of inspired by real events or real accounts of supernatural um the it, the 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 medium that subgenre itself kind of lends it's because it is dealing with something ethereal and uh supernatural it lends itself to creativity um that's why it, you know i don't want to talk too much about an episode that hasn't dropped yet but we talk about uh how eventually it becomes a little bit of a uh convention a lot of the you know it comes a little bit of a formula with uh haunted house movies but that kind of formula didn't exist yet mm. in 1980 um it was these movies that come out in 1980 changeling shining the fog 82 poltergeist uh just before this amityville horror just before that burnt offerings, burnt offerings. yeah it's the, the success of these movies that then propel you know uh, uh, yeah. create a convention that now we see. Yeah. Uh, that's why Real I like story. And that's why Christine like, like this too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Christine, I can see elements of Christine uh, in this And even movie. Uh, as well as you get like TV movies, you had the car, oh, which yeah. was, you know, that was super, certainly supernatural. You had um, Dozer, I think it's called about a supernatural bulldozer. <laughs> that's actually, actually a quite a good movie. So you have a lot of, possession of items too like where this these pirates or not pirates but the the, the go the, the leper colony you know they're not haunting a single house it's yeah. a location or something i like that idea or that's traveling within the car or the thing the vehicle yeah well tv movies that's a whole other yeah that's a whole other thing that we've only scraped you know, the surface of. or or what is it the haunting uh, terror at at twenty thousand thirty thousand feet that where they're bringing the english abbey back over in the plane and the and it's triggering on the flight over and that's got a great cast of like carl wins winfield we just brought up and some other people but or shatner too but you have a lot of these movies that are making these great you know uh footsteps and establishing this kind of uh a uh, foundation here for this yeah, you and know, in a way, which people forget, you know, because yeah. the slasher was big. <laughs> yeah, there's this whole other thing happening in horror at that time. Um, Fog is interesting because, in a way, it's playing with both of those subgenres. Um, and one could argue whether it's doing it successfully or not. But this idea of it's, you know, the the intent and why I say you can see shades of Christine is because what I love about Christine is how much he is success, successfully makes the car a character in that movie. <clears throat> it's every bit as much of a, a character in that movie as Arnie and Dennis and everybody else, Mr. Darnell. <laughs> you know, it's all that stuff. The uh, Yeah. What he does in this movie, maybe not as successfully, but it's also, I don't think 
I don't think that he's trying to make it as much a character, but he does manage to make the fog a character in this movie. And when- well, I mean, it's it's great that they have. It could have just been a fog, but it's really a great idea uh, to have ghosts and specters in the fog. So yeah. once it's there, and then suddenly you have these silhouettes, which is you know that certainly look like almost pirates and stuff. It's frightening. It's like it's very so. I think that's a great choice and you know a real uh, a conscious choice he had to make. Yeah, well, the fog is a great device <clears throat> because it's something that we all know. It's something that's a uh, a convention of the horror genre. It's something that we've all experienced, uh, and it's it plays on the biggest like fear of humans, which is the unknown. Like what's in it? Like like you said, I mean when they saw it at Stonehenge, like, like his imagination was peaked, you know, it, it sparked something that was like see that fog, what's in that fog? Because it it masks what's in it. So it it, it does create fear in the, of the unknown, which is something that ultimately is like man's greatest fear. <laughs> mm. Um and so it's a great device, and he successfully uh, manages to cr- have it be a character while also playing on uh, what he considered the uh, current marketplace of the time. And then we can get more into that in a little bit, because he ends up reshooting a lot of things to try to make it more contemporary. But uh, it, early on... Uh, like I said, he and Deborah Hill write the script. They end up making this movie for Avco Embassy for very little money. And by this point, he's married to Adrian Barbeau. He uh, he beats Adrian Barbeau when he casts her in Someone's Watching Me. And if anybody wants to have uh, an interesting read who's a Carpenter fan, uh, Carpenter doesn't take up a huge section of the book, but she wrote an autobiography. Adrian Barbeau wrote, wrote an uh, autobiography. I think it's called uh, There Are Worse Things I Could Do, which is a play on a song in Greece, which she sang when she was in, I think, the original cast, if I recall correctly, of Greece. Um, and so she played Riz, so that was her song. So that's the name of the book. But there are like some chapters in the middle that are about her courtship with Carpenter and how they met and her, the, you know, what she thought of him. And uh, it's a very interesting read if you're a Carpenter fan, because you see a side of Carpenter that we never see. We see like a loving <laughs> romantic view of Carpenter through uh, a woman who loved him's eyes. How uh, long were they together for? Um, it was like the late seventies. And then, I guess it must be through at least the mid '80s because I don't think Cody is born until like the mid '80s, so uh, longer than I think one thinks that he, they were together. But uh, so it was a little while. Um, it wasn't ultimately. It wasn't like a long marriage. It was a handful of years, maybe five, six. I don't, I'm not positive, but uh, you know. So she writes about. When she meets him, their courtship, when they get married, and so she writes. There's a chat. There's a some some writing about the fog. Um, when you when you watch interviews with Jamie Lee Curtis about the fog, uh, and this is the first time I ever 
maybe I was naive or just never really thought about it. I never realized that Carpenter and Deborah Hill were a romantic item until oh yeah until kind of Jamie Lee Curtis I think was um, interviewed for the Fog for like that first MGM Blu-ray I uh, not not Blu-ray DVD release in like the early two thousands. That's the one I have, and the, and then the two of them are on there, and that's where you get the audio commentary. Yeah, Deborah Hill Carpenter audio, audio commentary. And so there is talk about that too in her book, which is like, you know, he was with Deborah when he met Adrian Barbeau, and um, that transition from being in a romantic relationship with also someone you work with to then falling madly in love with this actress and then marrying her. And so a lot of Jamie Lee Curtis's memories of making the fog are not totally pleasant ones. And that like she, her biggest recollection of it is that her friend, her very good friend is sad because essentially Deborah Deborah Hill, because essentially, you know, Deborah Hill's the producer and the co-writer of this movie. So she's there and the fog ends up in, in an essence being like Carpenter and Bo Barbo's, honeymoon kind of barbo talks about how it's also a weird time for both of them and because like the courtship phase of their relationship is over and they're now married so there's like that weird transitional part of their relationship it's also like carpenter's career is rising because of halloween and her career is kind of stagnant because mod has been canceled and she can't get she's decided to not take on television work because she wants to get established as a film actress and so she's not working but he's becoming this huge deal uh so it's a very interesting sorry so it's a very interesting view of a how a relationship deals with two people that work in the entertainment industry when uh which is a competitive industry, no matter how you look at it. And when someone is up and someone is down. And so she talks about how that really, that it was just a weird time. And, uh, you know, it wasn't all flowers and <laughs> moonbeams. Uh, she also talks about how the, they decided that they were going to be very professional on set. They got two different, they each got their own hotel room. Uh, that kind of help. That probably helps, you know, because you're doing you're- on location. They only talk to each other on set when it, you know, like a director and wife. And uh, she talks about how that only lasted like a day because then John Carpenter like turned to her, he's like, "This isn't fun." <laughs> like, so they ended up uh, ultimately being professional. But yeah, but the hard thing is that Deborah Hill's on set this entire time yeah. because she's hands on because the crew is so. It's it's just above Halloween. The physical crew they only have like five six people. Yeah. Very gorilla bare bones. Style. It's almost exactly the same. Everybody yeah. from the same crew. So Dean Cundy and Hill his, and his crew are the same. Everybody's the same as the Halloween crew. So and, even though she's a producer, she's actually holding like probably C stands and flags yeah. and you know and she's and moving she, equipment and you know and in and essence this shit and is in essence having this new relationship of John's being rubbed in her face every day, which is. It's it's sad. And Jamie Lee Curtis talks yeah. about how, um, you know, she was like 19 when they made Halloween and Deborah and Carpenter were like 30. So they were very um, parental. Like she uh, she thought of them very much like a like a like a movie mom and dad. And she said that uh, 
At some point, they called her and invited her over to their house, and they broke to her that they were splitting up. And Jamie Lee Curtis cried because it was like her parents were getting divorced in a, in a weird way. And she relates the fog. She's like, well, you know, I don't really have a whole lot of memories of the fog. One, I wasn't on the film for the duration of it. You know, my parts were she's on, I'm not in the movie as much as I was in the movie in Halloween. And uh, she's like, and it just felt weird because Deborah was sad. She's like, it was like I was visiting my dad after he got divorced for the weekend because <laughs> uh, he was with like his new wife and um, which is it's just I you know doing all this research and reading up on those things it's just it's very interesting I think to put those goggles on and look at these films through like these personal lenses of the people that made them uh, so that's an interesting aspect of it uh, Jamie Lee Curtis gets cast in the movie because she had not take her career hadn't taken off after Halloween. You would oh now what year is she doing uh, prom night and uh, horror train? They she makes those movies after this movie. Oh okay. Basically, what happens is she makes Halloween. You would think she's in a movie that's a huge success that her phone would be ringing, and she's like, "My phone didn't ring." She said, "I did one guest spot on Charlie's Angels." And she's like, and I did an ad- and she love boat, and I did an too. episode of the love boat with with yeah. my mom. She says, yeah. And she's like, so this thing that you think would bring independence, which is like box office success, ended up not bringing independence. She got a job because her mom was in it, and, and those uh, are big shows at the time. But it's just you know they don't rerun them at the time. But either, it's like so. a couple of days worth of work. You know, it's not. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's exactly. Not a, not a career yet, and yeah. so uh, apparently Cop- Carpenter feels very bad. That she, her career hasn't taken off and she, he feels she deserves it. And she says, I'm going to put, I'm going to write a part for you in this movie. And so he writes to her, uh, the part of, uh, Elizabeth Solly. And she likes the part because she feels it's a little closer to her, the, the, you know, the style of the, what she, the way she dresses. Uh, and, so that's how Jamie Lee Curtis gets into it. This is the first time for a lot of people that become part of like the John Carpenter troupe of actors. We have, this is uh, Tom Atkins's first appearance in a John Carpenter movie. Uh, this is a first appearance of the great Buck Flowers in a John Carpenter movie. Buck Flowers goes on to be in a slew. He has a big part in They Live, uh, Village of the Damned. Of course, he's the bum on the bench of back to the future. He always played like a homeless guy. (laughs) Yeah. In this movie, he's a fisherman. And, uh, we have, as Dion kind of insinuated, a lot of people that have already worked with Carpenter, not just on the crew, but we have, uh, you know, behind the scenes, we have Tommy Lee Wallace, who is again, like the production designer and also the editor. He goes on to direct Halloween three. He's a member of the band, the Coop de Bills with Nick Castle and John Carpenter. But uh, he's the shape in the original Halloween. Nick Castle is known as being the shape, but Tommy Lee Wallace does play the shape in, in several key scenes in Halloween. Yeah. Uh, his wife, Nancy Loomis, who's in Halloween, she rep- she comes back. She's plays the role of Sandy, which is like the assistant to, to Janet Lee's character, Charles Cyphers, who plays Dan O'Bannon. Uh, yeah. There's like the weather guy that uh, Adrian Barbeau's always talking to on the phone. He's the sheriff in Halloween. 
And we also get a lot of references to Carpenter people. He, he like he uses names like Nick Castle, people he knows as Dan O'Bannon, who, of course, is one of the writers of Alien, but who he co-wrote and uh, who's in Dark Star, which was Carpenter's first movie that he that started off as a as a uh, you know student film. Um, we also see uh, Darwin Jostin, Jostin who is yeah. from Assault of Precinct 13, and he plays the... Uh, the corner. He plays the corner, Dr. Fibes. The M.E., <laughs> yeah. No, the- a little small Vincent Price <clears throat> reference. A Carpenter has a little cameo as a character named Bennett, which is uh, <laughs> yeah. interesting because Bennett is a, is a character name that he uses a bit, quite a bit. He uh, There's a un... There's a script that never gets made where one of the main characters, his name is Bennett, but also Bennett Tramer, who's the guy that uh, Laurie Strode has a crush on in Halloween and who is gets killed <laughs> in a fiery accident in Halloween 2. And then nobody cares about. That's your revenge movie right there. Uh I don't know. Anything you want to throw in here? Well, like then I'm, we got the great Hal Holbrook also. He he steps in. Uh, Hal Holbrook, um, they said, I, I said, heard, I, I said, they said that Christopher Lee might have been entertaining this role. And I don't know if that's true, but that's interesting thing because he was also uh, entertained to be Dr. Um, Dr. Loomis in, the, yeah. in that Pleasance. So that's interesting that there's two dodges that Christopher Lee has early on in Carpenter's career. Because uh, I don't think they end up, ever end up working together. Yeah. Well, he turns down you know, Dr. Loomis and then... His think, agent, yeah. And I think later states that like that was one of the big regrets of his career is that he could have played Dr. Loomis and he didn't. So maybe that's why he was being entertained for this because maybe Halloween was a big success. And, yeah, but um, it was just a conflictual obligation. Um, I think it's a superb cast. You know, we got Tom Atkins, who I declared, um, you know, every, any... He <laughs> lets you know that any man is leading man material. Absolutely love Tom Atkins. And uh, uh, and also, uh, Curtis is playing against type. You know, she was kind of being set as she didn't want to be pigeonholed as this naive, good, straight-laced girl. So this lets her play a little more of a spunky, uh, a little more older kind of uh, free spirit, you know. And this is back in the day. I don't know if young people, it's 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 hard for our generation but like hitchhiking was a thing you know up until like the early 90s or so that was how you just would get around you know people like you and i would just go hit you know i know people who were slightly older than me who hitchhiked across the country so she's hitchhiking at the beginning of the movie when she meets um uh atkins you know yeah um so well, it also uh, doesn't just you know it's not that she's playing against type of of halloween but the convention is against type. I mean, obviously that convention didn't really exist yet. This idea of like the people that have sex get killed in a horror movie and the people that don't survive it. Uh, that kind of starts with Halloween and people always cite Halloween when, and we're talking about the rules of horror and sl- I guess specifically slasher movies. But here it's like she meets Tom Atkins and then bam, they're in the sack. <laughs> Yeah, I know. That's the charisma of Tom Atkins. The undesired, you know, the magnitude. You saw in Halloween three, we talk about we did that. You know, his his charisma and his six pack of beer he has. Although he can't be trusted him open in this on movie. the movie. They I can't trust him in this movie. Well, because he's mustacheless, and I yes. don't know if I can trust a mustacheless Tom. Atkins. Is he also mustacheless in Creepshow? 
I don't believe so. Well, actually, he might be. Now that you mention, he has a mustache, and I think he has a mustache in Escape from New York and everything else. And Halloween you know, Three, uh, and, and, yeah, uh, and Night Night of the Creeps and stuff. But I don't, I don't know if he has a mustache in in, um, in Creep Show. Uh, but then it's interesting because this is this is kind of like an an early version of Creep Show because when you get into the church, a lot of the the lighting is very Creep Show esque with the with the with the colors and stuff. And then you look at the crew uh, or the cast. Hal Holbrook, um, Barbeau, uh, they all, they, Atkins go do creep show. You know, this has very much the EC comics. I'm a big, big fan, which we covered on the show a couple of years ago of, um, uh, the Garfield Halloween special from 1985. And that, uh, either consciously or unconsciously lifted a lot of this, but they make them pirates. But it's, it's such a great formula of there's a curse, there's a clock. Uh, well, and we haven't got into that yet, but this, this supernatural thing that's going to kind of by force, uh, right or wrong that happened so long ago. So it's just, it's, it's a, it's, it's very much to the EC trope, you know, that you used to see back then. Yeah. Um, and the spectacle. Yeah. I mean, I guess one of the things that I, we kind of got veered, uh, thrown onto a different course is that I was talking about how in a lot of ways this movie, um, plays with a couple of different genres and the idea of not just the fog, but like these figures within the fog and that they, they commit like very real murders <laughs> kind of plays into the slasher genre in a weird way that when uh, that other don't other supernatural movies of that era don't. And I didn't realize until this viewing, I guess, I thought they were just coming back to get the whole town. Yeah. And then I guess I haven't, uh, I couldn't tell you the last time I'd seen this all the way through. Um, but I know it enough that, you know, I, I know most of all, I've forgotten Carpenter's at the beginning, the cameo, the like the church assistant to Hal Holbrook. Um, but uh, yeah, it's just very, it's all very interesting. I just thought they were going back to kill everybody and then they were just stopped but I didn't realize they're getting six. You think by that point, they'd just be like, you know, the whole town is cursed because you're the relatives or you're the descendants of these, these people. Um, uh, yeah. So the, the event is also kind of steeped in a semi-legend. You know, there's, there's a couple things that they cite in this. The, um, the poem, The Wreck of the uh, Palatine, which was a, a real event that happened off the coast of uh, Long Island. And then there's another one in, on the... Um, uh, West Coast that Carpenter directly cites too that he said that they uh, about them what is it taking a wreck or or I don't know if they were real they, I don't think lepers were involved but they 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 kind of guided a ship and made it run aground so that it would break apart and I would assume people were killed and yeah. then they were you know they would they were stealing only one person died in the thing off of uh, Block Island in Rhode Island but. The other thing here was I with that they said on the West Coast that actually kind of killed people and that was a thing to do where you just put a big bonfire on the land head them towards it in a rough weather and then they get they run aground yeah and, and then, then you, you steal their the money ship. their loot <laughs> yeah at the time because stuff was still going so this is it and then people I certainly forget on the East Coast um we had pirates we had pirates until like the I don't know, what, 1850s or 1860s? There were pirates going up and down the coast from Florida and those islands up to, like, Massachusetts. That's crazy. Captain Kidd and stuff like that. So you had a lot of this. This all falls into that 100 years ago, 1880 yeah. to 1980. So, yeah, I love all that. Yeah. Atmospheric. Uh, I mean, I think we can assume that 
you everybody know knows it. the story. <clears throat> yeah. Um, be, because, I mean, we could get into the nuts and bolts of like, you know, we should do we should do a radio show of this, like they did with <laughs> the mist. That would be a really good. That would be see if we can one. get you call call John and Cody up and be like, hey, do you think we can, you know, borrow the rights and do a do the, a fog radio version of this? We can get Carpenter to voice the Hal Holbrook part. Oh my God, that'd be great! <laughs> we can get Hal Holbrook to voice the Hal Holbrook. Oh, is he part. still alive? God bless him. Yeah, don't. <laughs> About four years ago, I saw him. My wife and I went to Terrytown Music Hall, and we were front row. We watched his uh, Twain, and yeah. that mother did that play so dramatically. He's been doing that play for over fifty plus years. Yeah. And at the seminal moment in that play, when he was giving one of his like very emotional monologues, he teared up and cried on command. And I started crying. I was like, Hal Holbrook, why are you crying? Mark Twain. So, uh, you know, God bless Hal Holbrook um, in this. So we can get him. Here's one of the, uh, I think one of the, some of the criticism that revolves around this movie and even revolved around this movie back in the day from critics when it came out is that it's a little convoluted. I mean, the, the, the film, the story, the plot, not so much like what's happening in the present day, but like why it's happening. The backstory of it is a bit convoluted. And a lot of critics at the time pointed to the fact of like, by telling the audience that there's going to be six murders, then you kind of are taking away some, some, some suspense from the movie because then the audience is just like, okay, that's one, that's two. Okay. The first, the first murder, he kills three people. <laughs> they killed three people. So that's three down. You know, then they got uh, the old lady. That's four. See, I've, I've missed that in subsequent. I just thought they're killing everybody. And then when they say, it's like, oh, okay, the six, I get it now. So yeah. But then there's also like, that. Okay, if they're there to kill six people, like the why are they attacking more people, more than six? And are they there for revenge, or are they there? Are they there for their gold? You know, there's a lot of it. It opens a lot of questions. <laughs> Certainly, this review, this review it was the whole idea was I thought they're taking the gold from this plundered uh, wreck, and they're starting. That's how the town gets started. And yeah. then later on, when they're giving the ceremony. The, the mayor or somebody does say that because of this tragedy, the town was signed with the, the compact with the Indians. So their history is convoluted. But I always assume that the ill-gotten gains from the plundered loot from the from the ship was made into the town. But then at the end, you find out that they they'd melted yeah. it all down and made a gold you know, idol out of it of and the how, cross. And, and then and they how, hit it. And how and Father Malone talks about, like, reads from the diary that... Like, no, they didn't. You Like, nobody knew about the gold except for his ancestor who hid it. And so, that's another thing was I said, too, was he's a father. So how would his grandfather be the father? It must have not been Roman. Ca- I mean, what's yeah. what, maybe maybe it's like a, you know, another maybe it's Episcopalian or something that they're able or Episcopal. They're able to have a, a well, he'd be a vicar then, I guess. Yeah. Um, it's you know, a little. He, they're able to. Yeah. You have to go with but, it. But I mean, it could it could be explained away. You know, we just don't know. I haven't seen the remake of The Fog since it came out. But what thing I, I one thing I do remember about it, it's probably the only thing I remember about it. And I'm not going to go into whether it was good or not, because honestly, like, I don't remember. Uh, but one thing I do remember being liking about it is that it was very clear, this aspect of the plot. Like the lepers wanted to move their leper colony from an island onto the mainland, and they set up a deal. And then six conspirators of uh, the town that wasn't really a town yet, but of like 
that part of the of the land conspire to kill the lepers because they don't want a leper colony near where they a live. A mile away. Yeah. And then one thing I do remember about the plot of the and I could I could have made this up. Like I said, it's been like twenty years <laughs> since I saw whatever it came out. Uh almost twenty years. Is that it's very clear that they take the riches or they, they take yeah. the money that the lepers have and they build the town on it with with yeah. the money. And I- and and I what I remember I only also saw the move, the remake when it came out. I remember liking it more than I like say the thing prequel or something. So I, I they did turn it into a teen movie, which um, I don't you know that was. Uh, but I do remember liking it the first time and the only time seeing it. And I do remember you say like that they are establishing things. And I from this original movie I got all that up until. Uh, I just didn't understand that. I guess it was only. I thought it was the town, the collective. Again, talking about wouldn't we talk about this last? Maybe with Poltergeist, the collective town guilt. They conspired against all the, the. You know, I didn't realize it was six conspiracies. Then six people have to get back, uh, get killed yeah. as a revenge, um, which was fine with me. You know, I got all that when I was little. That the leper colony, and then they were rev- they were double crossed. They died. I got all that, yeah. you know, leper, you don't want lepers up the road, uh, you know, back then, if it was contact leprosy, we've all seen, you know, Papillon, we know, you know, you gotta watch out with leper, you know, so it, it was a scary time, well, not, <laughs> so, uh, well, it's one of the things this, that kind of plays into uh, something that we see a few times in Carpenter's movies, um, much more overtly in They Live, which is like Carpenter's negative view on like the American capitalist history uh Mm. this movie comes out and this movie's made in 79 comes out in 80 it comes so it's coming out after uh dawn of the dead which one of the the kind of main uh themes of that is like the excess of consumerism that's rising at the time um it's also right around the time it's before the election but it's you know the rise it's at the very forefront of what eventually becomes like the reagan era uh, mm-hmm. And which is very much what like his primal scream against what's happening uh, in the eighties with uh, you know like the yuppie greed is good consumerism aspects of what's happening in the eighties and so we have a, a plot where this uh, these townspeople again it would make more sense if it was what was happening what seems more clear in the, in what we remember of the remake, but they're basically like celebrating the drifter. <laughs> they're celebrating, you know? uh, greed, you know, yeah. it, it's it, when you look at both Halloween and the fog, well, the problem is they're in, they're innocent that the people in the original, the town doesn't know. It, it, I mean, they're not going to know now because of age as well, but you think they'd be a little more culpable if all their ancestors had known. Yeah, you know, but if it's only six people that hit it, and then they hid the spoils of it, you know, they didn't need the money for the town. Which I remember the remake saying they used the money as the foundational, so everyone's a little more guilty who's involved, you know, yeah. who, who's profited off of it. Um, the other people are just like innocent bystanders. We didn't know. I mean, <laughs> you know? when you look at the f- when you look at these are two mo- you know his two feature films back to back, Halloween. And they live. Of course, there's the television movies in between. But when you take a look at like those two films, they're both films that have a backstory that's based in like reality uh, of a horrible event, 
whether it's Michael Myers killing his sister or the towns, the this group of townspeople basically murdering this leper, these people of this leper colony. And then they're both take place on the anniversary of that event in Halloween. It's taking place, you know, uh, several years in the future, but on Halloween when that happened, this movie's taking place on the, you know, on the centennial. So, uh, hundred years since the creation of Antonio Bay. But what the, what Dion's saying is that like townspeople don't know it, but Antonio Bay is built on a lie and on the backs of, uh, whether they built the town with the, with the money that they stole from the, uh, from the lepers or what they insinuate in the ceremony, which is like, it was, took that horrible tragedy to unite <laughs> the people and create the relationships that led to the, the, the creation of Antonio Bay. Uh, so this idea of the anniversary uh, and the horrible events is something that he carries over. It's also interesting that they're both playing with a form of horror, uh, like classic horror, like, Halloween is the is the story of the boogeyman. I mean, it's, it says, was that the boogeyman? Uh, this movie is playing on the idea of the ghost story, which, you know, we've all heard ghost stories, whether it's at a campfire, like the movie opens, or, you know, just your friends talk talking these myths. Uh, so it's just like, it, I don't know. It's a hard movie to kind of, figure out what to talk about in terms of the, this general aspect of the plot. Yeah. Like it's a little convoluted and it could be more clear and there's aspects of it that we're, we're, we're discussing that may have been corrected in the remake <laughs> or at least made stronger. But I mean, uh, a lot of this too, I think we're, we're, we're really reading in some of this, you know, some of it could just be us analyzing it. Yeah. Or, they're just like, well, you know, it could be this way. Yeah. You know, uh, but uh, I think that a lot of reasons for with his initial unhappiness with the finished product of this is I hear why he green, he agrees to the remake so that they can, you know, yeah. figure out, fix, come with some of the, oh, maybe when you redo this, you could, you could, you know, amend some of the, the, uh, the issues we thought we had with this, but none of that boggled and bogged me down. No, you know? no, it's stuff that you don't really get bothered with. I mean, you know, and like as uh, they live is very much more politically minded. I th- this I never, you know, I I got the idea of getting revenge on the town, but I I I never um, equated what was going on in the end of the Carter administration to to you know of, of what what's happening yeah. of the era. But you I know, mean, of course we didn't live it at the time. Yeah. Well, I you mean, know. that's the thing. I mean, look at how, I mean, that's part of what we always talk about in the show is what's happening at the time. Yeah. Influences everything influences all art that comes out at that time in some way. Sure. Um, and of course that's a very analytical like uh, way of looking at it, but I, I don't, know if it's necessarily a coincidence. I mean, Carpenter's made it quite clear from his other work how he feels about certain things, but he's also a contra you know, he's also a contradiction. Uh is one of the things I even say in my intro of his chapter in my book. Like he is kind of a walking contradiction, the way he talks about things and the way he feels. Like he doesn't like I've read interviews where he says he doesn't like the credit a film by. 
because, you know, like a film by John Carpenter. He's like, because film's a collaborative art form. But yet, he puts his name above every title of his movie. John Carpenter, yeah. <laughs> he takes ownership. Yeah. <laughs> so, sure. uh, John Carpenter is without a doubt a capitalist. Uh, yeah. But yet... Well, he, and he plays with these certain things. But yet, you know, he kind of, through his movies, one would say that he's got a skepticism and maybe uh, not the, the greatest view on at least certain aspects of capitalism. Um, but in a more like, uh, ex- looking at the movie in a different way, at a, a different a different part of this whole thing, is, uh, like I said, the idea of the boogeyman and then the idea of the ghost story. This is a very literary horror movie. You know, you know it opens with a quote by Poe, which is like setting this the stage you know it's 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 letting the audience know that this is going to be a certain kind of movie and then he reinforces that with the john houseman character telling a ghost story uh at the beginning of the movie to a bunch of kids he's establishing story and legend and the idea of like the oral uh passing on of stories is a, is kind of a thing that shows up a few times in this movie. So it's a very important aspect of this movie. Don't just open the movie with a little bit of exposition uh, and a, a ghost story, but Tom Atkins tells a tale to Jamie Lee Curtis uh, when they're on the boat, when they're kind of investigating the boat. He tells this story that's not related to the story where we don't, it doesn't, we see similarities, but it's not directly related to the story that we're watching in the movie. But it's reinforcing, one, the idea of storytelling and ghost stories, but it's also reinforcing like this fear of the ocean. The ocean is this place of the unknown. It's a dangerous place. We don't know what's out there. And then ultimately, it ends with a kind of a ghost story, which is uh, the character of Stevie Wayne telling her audience you know, like, this is what happens. She's continuing. Now this is a ghost. Now this will be a story that is told throughout the town and probably neighboring towns. There's now a new story. Um, Carpenter, obviously, he remakes the thing, but uh, he gives, in a way, a little nod to the thing with her thing, where it's like, you know, the reporter in the Howard Hawks produced thing from another world is like, watch the skies uh, in this you know, Stevie Wayne says, look across the water into the darkness, look for the fog. It's a warning. And she's now, like I said, she's continuing the tradition of ghosts, of ghost stories. And uh, the only reason why we have these ghost stories are through the tradition of telling them and passing them along uh, from one person to the next person. There's also stuff that you know, it, you know, you can read in. It's maybe it takes a little bit of reading into it, but it is established that Stevie Wayne is kind of an outsider. She's a new person to the town. Now, she, where's her? Before we leave, they added on the Hausman beginning for a reshoot. Do you know what the original beginning was going to be? Just minus that with the intro of the fog. You know, I don't you know. Have that just? I'm not positive you know, that that was an add-on. Oh, I thought they said that they it uh, may went be. back and. Um, and, and you know they were trying to figure out what to do, so they brought him in for the day. You I'm know, when I'm were... not sure about that. It might be. Um, I know all they... the stuff, and we can get more into the specifics of what they more stuff that they reshot. But all the stuff with like the town going haywire was a resh- was yeah. added. 
Uh, and that so it's like a third. They say it's like a third of of the stuff, or or at least half is newer. So I wonder no, just I've heard, to see. I've heard Carpenter say about ten percent. Oh really? Okay, I heard it was much more attributed. So I I wonder what to see what what was taken out or what was redone. You um, know, um, the gorier stuff. I know. Yeah. Um, well, we can then, get so, we can get into the reshoots. Uh, so where is Bar? Where is Barbo's husband in the movie? You know you that's his, never. You know, that's never established. And I thought he it's, died or he's away for the weekend. Maybe he's out a, in a boat. You know. Apparently, in the novelization, which we're not going to get, we're not going to investigate uh, as much as we do in other or like we do in other films. I read the novelization. There's ones out there back when I bought it, and I just don't remember it yeah. enough to really dive into yeah. it. There's certainly other like new, like different stuff in it. Um, and it was just too expensive for me to find on eBay, and that's part of why we were getting this Patreon. Patreon uh, <laughs> was to help us get some of these hard to find ones. The novels, the novels. What I will say about the novelization, to my recollection, is there is stuff that's in it that's not in the movie. Um, there's stuff in the movie that's not in the novelization, and part of that is because of these reshoots. But. Uh, there was an article done for I think a thing called like Horror Garage or some kind of where the where the writer um, talks about the process a little bit. And in this particular case, he lived very near where they were doing uh, post production for the fog. So he went and he talked to Carpenter and he visited uh, and he got to watch footage and he sat down with the sound editor and the sound editor played him things uh isolated lines so that he could hear them like i think from the tape recorder scene uh so he could see exactly what they said so he could write about them so he was a little bit more hands on than i think usually happens and so he really wanted to make that novelization an expansion of the movie and not like a copy and because he was a little more hands on through the post production process I don't think that script is exclusively, I mean, that novelization is exclusively written from a previous version of the script. He's actually there during the edit for some of the editing and he gets to talk to Carpenter about like, what was your intent? He gets to watch footage. And so I, I think it doesn't end up being completely different because of the reshoots, but he does include yeah. things that were things that were in the script that don't end up in the movie. Um, and I believe in the novelization, to my recollection, there is a mention of that her, her husband died, but it's not, oh, okay. but it's not, there's a lot of things that just aren't clear uh, or mentioned in the book. Uh, I mean, in the, in, by, in the movie, uh, she uh, says uh, like it beats Chicago. So we're to believe that yeah. she, she comes the from Chicago. She moves from Chicago with her son. She ends up buying this radio station in this lighthouse and she doesn't have money to hire anybody else. And so she's the sole proprietor and worker of this radio station. Uh, um, the novelization is written by Dennis Etchinson. Uh, and yeah, it, um, it's, it's back when the days when you had really low, you know, local stations, that's a, uh, this was shot in what Northern California there looked around or near Carmel where a lot of play Misty for me takes place. Where uh, East was the DJ yeah. in that, and I yeah. also love and was that. I was going to say, unfortunately, you know, like all that part of the country is on fire or burned down yeah. right yeah. now. Yeah, as of this podcast, sad. yeah. Um, the uh, I love the idea of them uh, using the old 
jazz in this because but like not not like bebop they're using like 40s and 50s because i love all that music so i was into they say like oh we couldn't they couldn't afford the rock at the time for her to be playing but her playing that i thought worked out great because i love the music but i thought it's also works well within the film yeah first for for being the background music that's playing i mean i guess rock could have you know work just as well some steely dan or something underneath but i like the jazz in there it's funny and it goes to like that play misty for me the jazz stations yeah because all that northern in the era northern california monterey and all that you know pebble beach that's where all the they do the jazz festivals and stuff and seconds they have that montage up there you're saying that reminds me just kind of sparked a memory from when I did read the novelization. I mean, The Fog was one of the first novelizations I bought when I got into doing it, uh, collecting them more avidly. So, uh, and I don't know, I don't, Dion's the one that keeps track of those years. So I don't know how many years ago that was. <laughs> Dion's the one's like, what well, was that- it when we, we did it. What did you get it when we when we did that those side casts and you start, you took was, the plunge? Yeah. Was that we then? did that side cast like shortly after I started. So um, that's 2003. 13, 14? Because yeah. when did we went to Thingy? It, um, we went to California. That was 2000, I think 13 or 14. Yeah. We went to, so that started everything. So, so yeah, around that's that around the time that I read it. But that sparked a memory. And I feel like there's something in the book where <clears throat> we see from like Stevie Wayne's, uh, you know, in Turner monologue, she comments on the music. Like she doesn't like the music, but like mm. it's a, it's a, if I recall correctly, it's like she talks about it like that's, it's a, uh, it says a lot about the town. Like to play something mm. like Coltrane would be too current. <laughs> yeah. For that town, you know, like it's, yeah. you know, in a practical sense, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, uh, who is the editor and works with Carpenter all, all throughout this period of his career, picks the music and, and for the movie, cause he's uh, the editor, but um, edits, you know, they needed cheap stuff or, uh, public domain stuff and there's a little nod she says one of here's a track from the coupe de Vils, which was you know a band with uh carpenter nick castle and, and tom lee wallace but in a sense like it, it is funny to think of like this town is so old-fashioned and so set in its ways that like this is what the town listens to <laughs> so awesome i want to move there yeah so i like she's playing that it's also a great location for a uh, a radio station i love you know that is a sub subculture. I think of horror films as the lighthouse. The that as a as a horror movie. Recently, they had a couple lighthouse related horror movies. The lighthouse with Willem Dafoe, and there was another one a couple years ago with um, uh, Gerard Butler, which I actually enjoyed. Um, and then one of my favorite episodes of the suspense in those shows is this Vincent Price does Three Skeleton Key, which is a great great. Uh, horror half hour, which any, everyone should go look on, listen to you on YouTube, but it, that takes place in a lighthouse as well. So I think it's a great, it adds to that um, as we move along, you know, Carpenter's interest in using Lovecraft and stuff. And, you know, it's a great location to be able to have, be trapped in something like that, to have the rate, it's, it's, it's fun to have the radio station in the lighthouse because they've updated it. Where so she's now in the older version because now they've automated all that with the park services. Um, so she's bought the site and she's able to to have the radio. I don't you don't see where the transmitter is or her antenna is, but that's not neither here nor there. Yeah. But I like the idea she's able to overlook the bay. You know she's able to 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 keep an eye out on what's going on and look out and uh, 
uh, and it lends itself to this great setup to, to then later on when she's attacked and she's stuck there. It's a, it's a fabulous, you know, some of those, some of those lighthouses are just very scary looking, you know, uh, well, why they very isolated, why they choose to shoot in that part of California is because of that lighthouse. They, uh, basically, obviously the lighthouse was in the script. And so, uh, Tommy Lee Wallace, John Carpenter, and I forget who the third person was. They basically drive up the coast of California stopping at every lighthouse, they got a book about California lighthouses and then taking a look to see, like, is this the lighthouse? And they found this one in the, I forget the name of the, where exactly the lighthouse is, but it's near like Port Reyes, California. But they saw that lighthouse and they're like, this is the one. So that's why they end up shooting in that part of the country, uh, that part of the state. And Adrian Barbo mentions that she was maybe doing a play or something in Vancouver at that time. And she says she remembers getting a call from John saying, I found where I want to retire and live out my days. And uh, she says where he's like, you'll, when you when you see it, you'll uh, you'll know what I mean. And she's like, you, you know, and I think they even bought a house up there. In that yeah, area they lived there at the time. At, at the point. So they ended up shooting there because of that house. What I was going to say is that like part of what happens with this event, and it's something that, look, again, it's a stretch. If you're going to really, you have to really read into things. But this idea of like Stevie Wayne being the newcomer, she was comes from the big city to the small coastal town. Uh, she insinuates it's from Chicago. But the, this event, her experiencing this event kind of makes her, now makes her officially one of the townspeople of Antonio Bay. Uh, she's now experienced her, this thing that the, the rest of the her, town is experiencing. There was a real famous DJ in the '60s called Allison Steele, uh, known as the Nightbird. The Nightbird, I was going to say the Nightbird. Yeah, yeah. So I think people were she was modeling herself a little after this because younger people, especially, will forget that this was you would listen to radio all the time. You had. Yeah, you know her. It's very kind of you know when we were watching it tonight when she's at the end of the movie narrating everything. It's almost like she was live streaming. You know, you can equate it to today's uh, kind of uh, generation and technology because back then, you know, you you had that personal connection because you were listening to the radio and that person was up for it with you. And it's much different now with all the social media and being connected so often. But this was a huge, huge kind of a connection with yeah. the audience member and the listener and then you know your 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 local dj and local djs were phenomenons so well it's uh, a it's a, a really device it's a really i i know i use the word interesting a lot but it's a it's because i need to expand my vocabulary but i have to get a thesaurus fascinating <laughs> but, it, but it is an interesting device to use for a movie uh because it's so not cinematic in one, in one sense, I mean, it's a person talking on a microphone, uh, but at the same time, it, it, you're right. She's she's isolated. She's from a weird. She's from a vantage point of the town that nobody else has, and she uses the radio uh, as as a way of you know dictating information or like. So it, in a way, it's like it's a it's. It's just it's it's an odd device, but really cool in that like because she's isolated, you get this aspect of like she's helpless there, but like she's like so she has to rely on the people of the town to help. Like my son, like somebody go to my house and get my son. Yeah. Somebody go check out 
you know, where Charles Cipher's uh, office is. And then it's because of her that the town, that the people of the movie end up converging at the church. It's because she's telling them, like, that's where it's, that's the only place yeah. that's safe. So it's just, it's a or five it's, cast members. It's just a very weird, um, it's a very weird device, but I think it works. Well, it's, it's very great, you know. I well mean, and cool. In this you moment. don't see it too often. I mean, I, you know, I I know play misty for me, but you know, you don't. I'm sure there's other. Oh, like the vanishing point has the guy who's narrating the Stevie Wonder esque kind of uh, DJ in that. But I, it's a great it's a great device, and it works here awesome. You know, it, it really furthers the plot and and all ties in. Uh, and it's a movie. This movie runs quick. It it it. it you know, pace is very quick. It's very, well, you know, begin to end. It's I, think, going, I think some people, you know, would disagree with that. Assessment. Oh, I think it flows. Like, I think it's just once it starts going, it's just a slow creeping. You know, there's nothing really stops it down. I mean, I guess the one scene where, where Atkins is telling you the story under, under the, under the water or, you know, in the hold there, I think, you know, you could say that, but I, everything seems to be this lurking, you know, every, like once it starts, you can't stop. It's like a slow creeping fog. Well, I think one of the things that is not going to sit well with some contemporary audiences is that it's so much reliant on like spoken word exposition, um, and and that, that that's and that and that that exposition is a bit convoluted. I think. I mean, I could be wrong. I'm speculating that that maybe some audiences that are used to a faster paced more visual style of, of storytelling today might find this movie a little bit slow, but I, you know, I certainly, well, that's don't. the problem with the world, isn't it? Against a uh, couple of things, you know, um, just moving around a lot of technical stuff. Um, the fog effects, uh, they worked with a company called a and a special effects, which were Richard Albane and Richard Albane jr. And Richard Albane jr. Was on set. They go on to work on, uh, Lois and Clark, the adventures of Superman. Uh, but uh, a lot of the sound, you know, this is pre-CGI, so they're using various kinds of fog and fog machines throughout the movie. Sometimes they have to reverse it because it's very hard to get fog to do what you want it to do. Often they'd have to tent the whole uh, where they were shooting so that the, the wind wouldn't take the fog certain ways uh, or blow it off set to get it to do what they wanted. So uh, even in the, you know, in the town we see... You know, massive amount of, of fog. All that has to be done there. Some, obviously, some of it's done in post, like the fog rolling into the uh, onto the beach from Stevie Wayne's point of view. That's done. They have to, you know, lock down the camera and get that original shot. And then in post, they shot. They kind of re. It's real smart. Yeah, recreated the topography of. Of of that coastline with black velvet. On a soundstage. Yeah, and a, all in black. With, with, Duvetine, so that they're they able could to then roll in the fog onto that uh, landscape and then superimpose it onto the, uh, you know, the the bad shot or the uh, establishing shot that they they got a few miniatures like the Tom Ag- when Tom Atkins saves the kid at Stevie Wayne's house and he's running out and you see the fog come in and envelop the house. That was a miniature of the house that they built that they kind of wow uh, keyed in. Because uh, I know the the tugboat was a miniature, but I didn't know that the uh, they built the whole house for it too. And that's just a smart idea because you're right. How are you gonna them then going in the post and using models to 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 and and just dry ice to have this your fog move the way you want it, you know, around 
whatever you know the black velvet you said and then you can just superimpose that and then it looks like it's going around your physical location that's really smart yeah just uh, another example of of the ingenuity of making special effects uh back in that kind of the heyday of not only makeup effects but just uh in camera effects that you know well rob Bottin's in this too as well makeup effects rob Bottin gets brought in to uh create the costumes and stuff for the for blake's uh crew of the um of the elizabeth dane and uh he does something that's kind of cool which is to get the glowing eyes he makes like a mask out of uh, latex, so it's almost like like a fashion like the Lone Ranger or like Robin from Batman and Robin. He makes that, puts it around his like a domino, yeah. Puts around his uh, face, and then he puts uh, a, a substance called Scotch Bright, which is what they put like on stop signs because it reflects the light, uh, you know, significantly. So he puts that on the mask, and so when they're on set. And they use something on the camera, and they just kind of put it's a little bit of light. It kind of amplifies the light by that it, that touches it like a thousand times or something. So the, uh, that's how he gets the glowing eye effect. It's just by reflect the reflection of light. Um, and he was making everything, and uh, Carpenter was just like, "How about you just play the part since you've made everything like your face?" <laughs> and of course, that that starts the relationship that then goes on. Uh, but the thing, he kind of he brings Rob Bottin back for the thing, and that's of course one of the great uh, makeup effects movies of all time. Yeah, he's a tall guy too, so it gives a nice big silhouette of a big old piratey with the real saber he carries around. Uh, much of the movie is shot on location, but uh, the interior of the lighthouse, the top of the lighthouse, the interior of the boat—all those things are built on a soundstage. Um, and with that, we can talk a little bit, which we've been kind of hinting at all this time, which is reshoots. Basically, Carpenter's uh, goal for this movie was to make like a Val Luton type, like not graphic uh, kind of horror movie. And so he makes the movie, he scores the movie, they put in some sound effects, and they test the movie for an audience, and Carpenter watches it with an audience, and he realizes that like it just doesn't work for today's, at that time, the 1979-1980 audience. Uh, this is one of the reasons why he goes and he reshoots stuff for Halloween 2 also. It's in his, it's in his uh, opinion that the, uh, the marketplace and the audience at that time need a more visceral film-going experience for it to be successful. And he deci- the slasher films were popular at the time. You're getting more gory in those, yeah, in those stab picks and stuff. Jason and Freddy, yeah. I mean, Friday, Friday the Thirteenth yeah. comes out in '80. Maniac comes out. Maniac, in 80. yeah. Of course, uh, Dawn of the Dead came out in '78, just before that. So, yeah. like a more graphic, visceral style of of horror is happening, and it's one of the reasons why he goes and he reshoots stuff for Halloween too. But it happens with the fog, and he looks at it. He's like, this movie just doesn't work, and it's not going to work for today's audience. Apparently, Avco embassy of the company and and the people he's working for is like no it's good like we don't need to do anything to it but carpenter says no like it's just it's not good enough it's not going to work and uh deborah hill agrees and tommy lee wallace who's his editor they agree with him and so uh ag barbeau adrienne barbeau in her book talks about this a little bit and she says like carpenter was crushed when it didn't work and he felt like a failure 
and he felt like this was he was never he didn't want to direct any more movies after this because for you know it turns out reshoots and stuff are the norm but when you're a young mm. filmmaker and you've now made like a really successful movie like Halloween and you didn't and you didn't do a whole lot of that when you cut it all together and you realize it doesn't work uh it's a big blow to uh the ego i i even there was a show called the director's chair on el rey network and i believe it was an episode with guillermo del toro where robert rodriguez and guillermo del toro talk about this and like when you're a new filmmaker and you and you don't realize that this is just the way things are that reshoots are the way the movie industry works and when you watch your movie that doesn't work it's really crushing and this happens to Carpenter, and he's 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 crushed by it, and he decides I'm going to go out and I'm going to do all these reshoots on my own dime. Um, luckily, Avico Embassy appreciate uh, Carpenter's chutzpah of wanting to make the film better. They say a lot of directors would have just been uh, happy with what they had and not want to make it better, so they decide to um, pick up the bill on the reshoots. So there's a little bit of uh, as we kind of. You kind of, you know, I think it was hinted at earlier. There's a little bit of uh, inconsistencies as to how much of the movie is reshot and all that stuff. Um, as some interviews say, like I said, some interviews with Carpenter say it was 10%. Some places say it's, you know, half. Um, certain things that I'm pretty sure were reshot or added. Um, Uh, as we as we kind of indicated earlier, the uh, the opening of like the town going kind of haywire. Yeah, that's kind of like um, Mac Max. Yeah, or not Mad Max. Uh, Maximum Overdrive. That stuff is fabulous, uh, though. <laughs> yeah, and it, I think it's pretty powerful. It's cool. Yeah. It sets a mood. Yeah, especially with the clock and all that. I love all that. You know, people. Not, and then you realize it's happening to everybody in the town, or at least our key players. He adds the. Uh, the top of the lighthouse scene with Adrian Barbeau and the worm face, uh, zombie ghost. Uh, they, they add that, um, they reshoot the trawler death scene with the three guys on the boat to kind of make that a little more shocking. Uh, they redo all the sound effects to make them a little more hard hitting. And I love the sound design in it. I think that's one of the things that really works great because ultimately, even with these reshoots, the movie's not incredibly gory or violent. You don't see what happens often, but you hear it. And I, yeah. I, th- I think that really works about it. Um, again, that was kind of the thing was he saw the direction of the way horror was going. And he said, like, this needs to be a little more uh, hard hitting. And so they end up reshooting a lot and he ends up having to rescore all that stuff because he had already kind of scored the movie. Um, at that point, this is pre Alan Howarth. Alan Howarth comes on to work with Carpenter and Carpenter's next movie in the, uh, in the mouth of madness <laughs> escape from New York. And he's working with this guy named Dan Wyman. He meets Dan Wyman at USC, I believe, and Dan is like a professor of synthesized music there. And uh, I guess before we get into the music, was there, is there anything more about the reshoots that we should cover? Was there anything well, that I you like found the, that I didn't mention? I like the um, 
the you know he's a he's a Hitchcock guy, and I like the idea of him doing the ending bit on top of isn't that all the reshoots where they take her and they put her on top of the lighthouse with the ghost the yeah. guys going after her, and that's all very nice like a Hitchcockian kind of a device with at the end of a North by Northwest or a um, saboteur, you know the having the the location be a little character in it. So I like that her, her fighting off, you know, and that's also the era of the Palma doing those movies, the kind of his Hitchcockian movies. So that's pretty cool. Uh, and then I like the idea of the, uh, with the gore, it's almost very, you're, and this goes, this can play back into your music, is the Italian horror of the time, you know, of the gore and the zombie movies and stuff, the Fulci movies. But then also his soundtrack has a close uh, sound from, in my own opinion, of like the, the Argento giallo movies of the era. You know, yeah. I love the diegetic and non-diegetic sound. You're saying the sound design where it's, you hear, at first, you don't. You think it's the, it's something. What is it? There's something making the noise. Oh, it's at the bottom. That's because it's the same noise from that three skeleton key I said earlier. When you can hear them trying to get into the metal door at the base of the lighthouse, and then all of a sudden that becomes part of the beat in the song that, on the soundtrack you're yeah. hearing or the the the, the score. Uh, I love all that. Yeah, you yeah. know. And then it has that that fast paced, you know, almost kind of uh, you know uh, frizzy kind of you know that it sounds very of its era yeah you know? well you know it's part of the equipment being used as far as this the the actual stuff reshot uh who knows i mean maybe today we might look back on that original cut in a way that uh is as being even more successful um apparently it's much more well, just like things being enveloped by the fog less to my understanding less of like the people within the fog doing like slasher type murders and more yeah. just like the fog itself being the the ominous thing and people uh not being murdered but being but like disappearing from within the like into the fog uh who knows how it would hold well, you, up now you you made a yeah you made a point to, about that with where the i'm saying how i think it moves and I think, you know, you think people, I agree with you. I do think modern audiences may have a problem with the pacing. And it's just sad because, you know, that's just, uh, it's not the it's not the creative person's fault that that's happening. But then that's a byproduct of now today's uh, tastes. So, uh, you know, to make it f- slower, faster, non-gory, people, I don't, you know, it, to go back to us seeing the original cut, I think it works great as it is now. So who knows if that other cut would be awesome too. But, yeah. You well, know, it's modern just, it's, audiences taste change, which it's is really, all speculation. Really you know, the unfortunate thing is, look, Car- Carpenter was a savvy filmmaker, and he was hell bent on having a career. So, whereas guys like uh, Spielberg and Lucas would spend you know years developing a project and then doing it, like Carpenter wanted very early on to just knock out a bunch of movies and build a catalog of movies because. His his mentality was, I'm going to learn from every experience. So the more movies I make, the better filmmaker I'm going to be in the long run. But unfortunately, the way the industry works is that like you're making a, a movie that will ideally make money, as much money as it can on its release. And there yeah. was not this thought, there was not like this, this thought put into longevity. So, I mean, of course, we, we, none of us saw that original cut, and Carpenter clearly wasn't uh, happy with it, whether it's specifically because of like he felt like it wouldn't perform well at the box office, 
or if there were other things like he just felt like maybe it didn't work. Uh, well, it didn't test well either. Good, right? They tested it and it wasn't good. People weren't liking yeah. it. So my only it was kind of the consent. The, it was the overall consensus by Deborah Hill, him, like maybe the studio, yeah. you know. And but my my uh, I guess where I'm going with it is like it would be great if that was a special feature because on a on a release, of course, it probably doesn't exist, so it can never be one. But like that movie may play better to an audience today today sure. than the new yeah. ver- than the current one does because tastes change and and what's happening in horror also changes um but well know. that's the shame that you said that he's you know he's going for that val luton great you know 40s kind of that you know where less is more in implication and then this is a different you know you he it's not like he's kind of uh uh like succumbing to everything or is forced to do this he he decides to make it a little more gory and have to add that but that's kind of you know it'd be nice to see the true reform of it um, you know because we like the pacing of it but you know and also the I think we should give a a shout out to the uh, you know Dean Cundy in the Panavision yeah. you know the, the Panavision again like Halloween that's I think half the you know some of these movies it's I think I said that in the Halloween cast. If you take the score away and you take away maybe the Panavision, you know, the, it, it, these movies change, I think, the delivery of them and, and, the, and the audience member, how they look at it, you know. Well, because Panavision's amazing. That's another thing that, you know, goes along with a lot of what we're saying is uh, younger audiences. Um, you have to put in perspective that most of our generation only saw this movie. On television, not in widescreen. <laughs> yeah, it's for, severely you cut. Know, for the first time. So, yeah. uh, you know, Carpenter's movies, for the most part, in a in a four three or whatever ratio, uh, you you lose like half of what's what you're seeing. It wasn't until it's like the, some of the great westerns. It's amazing the stuff you lose these these movies that you just don't realize that you know what you gain. Yeah. I mean, now we are able to, with the, you know, the change of technology of television, but also, of course, it started in the 90s on video to on VHS to start putting letterbox things. But now, now it's a given. It's, you know, we almost take for granted now with Blu-ray and DVD that we can see everything and it's an original aspect ratio. But uh, in terms of the music, you know, I think this is one of Carpenter's, maybe one of Carpenter's most beloved scores. It's definitely... Uh, it's extremely atmospheric, which of course works well because of a, a movie about the fog. Uh, Carpenter's always kind of acquitted himself as being someone whose music is riff-driven, and uh, in that, like, it's very identifiable. Like the either whether it's the Halloween theme, uh, this one I think is a little atypical for what we think of as Carpenter music. It's you know that that main riff. Of the piano and the and the keyboard that we hear, I guess it's probably the main theme. Although there's a lot of really great mu- uh, music and themes within the movie, is like what you were saying. It's kind of very much of its time. Uh, something a little. That's like, not a bad thing, though. Yeah, either. no, no. Yeah, In the, you know, it's yeah. a great thing. Sometimes especially. we say that, you know, as in saying, well, you know, you have to understand the time yeah. to appreciate it. Where this is. Not only is this th- the synth come back in fashion some ten past ten years with the eighties reback in uh, vogue, but it, th- this stuff still works. It's still kind of it has a longevity. Those uh, keyboard and lines always reminded me, ever since I first saw it, of uh, one 
the Alice Cooper song Steven. Oh yeah, you love that. That's a great off of uh, Welcome to My Nightmare. And also uh Steven. It's, <laughs> it's also kind of reminiscent of the uh I got that stuck in my head now. The, do, 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 do. the theme, uh, the phantasm theme. Oh yeah, it, sure. And that's kind of, what year is that? Nineteen eighty. That might be right, seventy nine or eighty. Yeah, it's definitely. I think before this. I mean, he's he's coming off of a part. I think part of those decisions for the remakes is he realizes like people are coming off of Dawn of the Dead, uh, things like Phantasm, things Suspiria. like Suspiria. Yeah, and he's a huge yeah. uh, Argento Vol- fan. Uh, Fulci zombie, I'm sure you've seen that. So in that terms of Italian like upping the upping overseas. up, not just upping the the gore or the visceral uh, footage uh, effect of the footage, he's also playing with kind of those musical ideas. Also, I mean, and, it's a sophisticated style, right? I mean, like we said, it the pacing works a certain way, and that that's a shame because that's a different conversation to have about the the uh, impatience of modern people not being able to to understand and appreciate and and have the patience for the, for the execution but also too like again Dean Cundy like those shot compositions are phenomenal yeah. at the beginning when they're at the supermarket or the car I mean everything you know and and I think that's part of uh Carpenter's boner is how awesome his his shot compositions yeah, yeah. in the 235 you know uh, I love all that stuff. I love the the anamorphic and how it looks, and you know. And I guess I didn't realize, but you hear in the commentary, he he talks about people who are afraid to shoot two three five because it's hard to do a close up in two three five. So you have to be yeah. able to have good shot composition, and you know, it's it these things you can do, but you have to think about it. And it definitely adds a lot of street cred to your movie. You know, you look like you have a big Warner Brothers movie when you're using that. So but, I think that all these elements play into this. Yeah. You know? Uh, just, I was getting into it a little bit before, just quickly. I just want to give like props to Dan Wyman, the guy who, uh, I think he gets like, I forget what his credit is in the front credits, but it's like the synthesis, like, uh, (laughs) uh, realization of the score. Uh, I think the people that help Carpenter in the music, uh, get short shrift. Um, I think it's very clear, uh, and unfortunately, I think Carpenter himself kind of downplays Alan Howarth's uh, contribution to the music that he made in the uh, in the 80s. And he never – Carpenter doesn't talk much about the music, the creation of the music in the 70s. He meets Dan Wyman. Like I said, I think Dan Wyman was working at USC as a professor of like synthesizers, electronic music. And he does uh, – he might do Dark Star with Dan. I can't recall, but he definitely does Assault on Precinct 13 with Dan Wyman. He does Halloween with Dan Wyman. Uh, somewhere between Halloween and uh, and The Fog, Dan Wyman works with David Shire, who has been brought up on the cast because of uh, Taking a Pelham 123, his score for Taking a Pelham 123, and his score for Return to Oz. But mm. uh, David uh, Wyman, uh, Shire... Yeah, he- and he did uh, Short Circuit. Didn't we do him this year? Oh, yeah. He Wasn't might he? have also done Short Circuit. Yeah. We just brought him up. Uh, but uh, Shire d- did a score for Apocalypse Now that ultimately mm. doesn't get used. But uh, it's a Who very- scored Apocalypse Now? That's a good question. I have that. I love that soundtrack, and it never occurred to me. Aside from the doors being on it, I, yeah. I forgot who does the actual... Because um, uh, that was one of those first soundtracks. Jesus, you remember that it ha- it's, it's like the story. 
the story version. It's sad. There's you know there's in in betweens of the story, the 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 audio of the movie and the voiceover and all that. So, um, also I didn't know that uh, Shire or um, you know he did he did that Sheer did the um, yeah uh, he did, did a tempo or a temp of uh, 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 you know I think Coppola's dad does the music who also did the music for Godfather. There's a name Carmine. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I think he ends up doing the score that she used, but uh, Shire does a very cool synthetic score that gets got a release a few years ago on CD, and it's very cool. Oh, that's awesome. And uh, Dan Wyman is- that'll be cool as a because they just did a freaking the seventh or eighth copy of <laughs> the, his his Apocalypse Now coming out, yeah. and that that'd be a great speaking of special features, have an alternate soundtrack with the temp. Of of the the Shire soundtrack, yeah. that'd be really cool. And uh, where it lands so somewhere between Halloween and the Fog, uh, Dan Wyman ends up ha- helping on that. Dan Wyman on, goes on to do some of his own stuff. He does, I think, uh, Hell Knight. Maybe what's the one with uh, Linda Blair? I think it's that. Um, he also also does the score. I think for Lawnmower Man in the nineties. Um, yeah, but he's like a no relation of- to Bill Wyman, right? <laughs> he's, yeah. It is a big synthesizer guy, and he ends up doing a lot of work with musical artists throughout the 70s and 80s, too, uh, programming things for them. Um, he's a really interesting guy. I've had a few run-ins with him, and uh, sadly, he looks back on his career in film uh, in a very bitter way. And he, I've tried to get him to let me interview him about his work with Carpenter and he just like will not talk about it. Uh, and I, is there I, a reason for this or do you know? What, I what, think it's what? just that he's very bitter about it. And I think he thinks not just Carpenter, but throughout his career in film that uh, things like people got credit for things that he feels like he should have gotten credit for. Um, and I've presented to him like, well, this is your chance to tell us. You know, and set, he, and he's, he set the record no. straight. I'm like, well, look. we have an open. He sounds a lot like someone I'd like because it sounds like a lot like <laughs> me, my career uh, uh, out of this podcast. But I open invitation. Have him come sit down with with the uh, the tried. man with the legend, Mister Blake. I keep on. The, uh, I still I email him about once a month, once every two months, just to say hi. And he lives in areas of California that are dealing with fires. And so I, I check up on him just to make sure he's doing okay. Right now he teaches. I don't know if he's presently teaching the, with the way things are. Uh, well, I, our, our super gold fan listeners, uh, you know, hit him up and on his social medias and say, let Jay Blake of the Saturday night movie sleepovers, but I uh, think of the Fisheras, <laughs> but I think it goes on with like what I was saying is that like, Yes, Carpenter de- deserves the credit for the music in his movies, but he also so, yeah, but, but he shares he really does share the creation of those scores with the people that he's collaborating with and I think those people do not get the credit whether it's Jim Lang for In the Mouth of Madness and and uh, uh Body uh, Bags or, or Alan Howarth or all these people. He's 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 a limited uh musician. And he'd be the first one to tell you that. So uh, Dan Wyman, God so bless him. And I think that's, he, that's where his bitterness comes out of is that you're saying just that he felt like that just he got screwed on certain projects. And then then he just doesn't want to talk about these these years. And and then what happens professionally? They don't Carpenter and he don't do anything uh, after this. After this, he and they don't work together anymore. And I don't know. And Carpenter meets Howarth. 
Yeah, he ends up Carpenter ends up meeting Cowher through who uh, does uh, an Escape editor. from New York. Carpenter and Howarth do Escape from New York. That's the first time Carpenter works with Howarth. And then yeah. they work together with, with through... With the Jamie Lee Kirch- Curtis uh, cameo as well in there. And they end up working together through Prince of Darkness and they live. And then I think that's when their collaborative relationship ends. But uh, it's yeah. a great score. I think it, in some ways, I think it's a, a score that falls through the cracks for Carpenter fans. Yeah. But at the same time, I think it's... a. a it's a it's a weird conundrum in that I think it falls through the cracks, but at the same time, I think it ends up being some Carpenter fans' favorite score of his. Now, for you uh, seeing him, did he does this, does he perform any of this content he uh, per- material in his concerts? It's one of the few themes. There's a handful of themes that he does in live in concert uh, that I feel like are done the way they should be done, which is that he makes a little bit of a suite out of them. Uh, mm-hmm. Others, he just plays straight, and I would rather have him do something different with them, like uh, a theme from Christine. He does a very cool, like, synth-wavy version of that. Uh, The theme, when he plays the fog, they roll in fog onto the stage, you know, like, they turn on the smoke machines, and uh, it... He's dressed... (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) And he plays with... uh, he plays a couple of different themes kind of truncated into one piece as opposed to like Halloween where it's just like for like a minute. I have this vision of him like uh, there's that Beastie Boys video where they're in Japan doing intergalactic planetary and I have when they're like in that one jumpsuit, the white jumpsuit with the yellow stripe. And I feel like I, for some reason I see Carpenter like on stage with the guitar and then he's in front of the keyboard standing there with a leg up, you know, playing this stuff with fog around him in this jumpsuit. He does. Uh, Carpenter wears black. And he stands in front of a keyboard center stage. Yeah. Uh, he plays basically one finger at a time and uh, does what I call the carpenter shuffle, which is oh. he kind of dances in place. And uh, it's amazing. So I don't um, know if we'll ever tour again now with uh, the way things are. But uh, uh, it was very cool. Fog was definitely, one of, uh, for me, one of the highlights of the live show. Uh, uh, so that that's the so I like how the soundtrack goes from diegetic to non-diegetic with the elements being from the you know a, a sound effect and it it gets enveloped eaten and becomes part of the score. Um, the movie, as a lot of his movies do, they kind of degrade into the uh, Rio Bravo, Night 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 of Living Dead, uh, uh, Assault on Precinct Thirteen esque. We're stuck in a house. The siege, uh, the the church stuff. Hal Holbrook mustache, very lucky. I can trust him in this. I think Hal is great. Uh, they didn't have him for many days, so they had to make a set for him to be in. So they had him up there. That, so I think Hal's great. I think Hal brings a lot to the project. The pathos, you know, he's the you know of of having to understand the gravity, the gravitas of of the wrong that's been committed. Uh, and then Janet Lee, I think, is great. Her connection to. Um, I think I've heard Carpenter uh, talk about uh, her in um, The Vikings, which is a movie I freaking love that has Kurt Douglas as well as Ernest Borgnine in and, and Tony Curtis. And I think they were an item, were married, and then I think they had young um, Jamie Lee on set like as a baby. You know, they were taking care of her when they were filming that. Uh, but Janet Lee, phenomenal. She's, to me, like, you know, when you look at uh, Adrian now, uh, she seems so warm, so wholesome, so nice, so pure. And Janet Lee's the same way. Janet Lee was always this nice, happy, very 
loving, you know, and it's just, it's, and she's really good in the movie too, Janet Lee, I think I, I'm, you know, yeah, her part in it. She's yeah. great in it. Um, you know, she's, you know, one, it wasn't one of the deciding factors, but it was certainly a perk for Jamie Lee Curtis to be the son of, I mean, the, the daughter of, uh, Janet Lee for Halloween, you know, as a kind of a marketing tool. Uh, sure. And so it was, uh, certainly, that also for this movie to have both of them in the in the movie together, uh, and, and it's cr- crazy to think that they're it's you know, that's 1980. I'm thinking like there's movies like uh, the Holiday Affair with her Robert Mitchum in like the late 40s. So she's got like 30 years under her belt. She looks great for her age. And then I'm thinking, you know, it's just the, the concept of time now. It's like, wow, that wasn't too long ago for them back then. Yeah, like 80 to 50, or you know, and that's where we are now. And it's just you know how quick things go. But I think. It's a good plus having them both in it, you know, although they don't really have a scene together until the very end. Yeah. In the siege. But, but um, uh, Adrienne in her book says that uh, uh, Janet Lee impressed the entire crew every morning. She would jump rope in like a velvet sweatsuit. <laughs> so she was keeping herself fit every morning, doing her regimen. Of course, she's yeah. best known for her role in Psycho. Uh, there's a kind of a, a, a some nods to Hitchcock in this movie, whether it's the mention of Bodega Bay, which is where Birds takes place. They actually yeah. shoot the dock scene when uh, Jamie Lee Curtis and uh, Tom Atkins go to f- see if the boat the the boat is there. That's actually shot where they shot the birds. Um, so this that, has a lot of elements of the birds in it. Where like yeah, well, it's kind of goes like and leaves and it's yeah, done. it's kind of like the, know, the weird danger of nature, a psychic like a na- then, natural phenomenon happening. The aforementioned, uh, you know, the big set piece at the end, having like you know her fighting off them on the top of the lighthouse yeah. turret. You know, that's and really also cool. like in the beginning with all that stuff with the the town going haywire. Like uh, I would imagine it's a very conscious nod to the birds to have like the gas pump fall over and have like the gas start to roll even oh, though clicking away even ding, though even ding. though like no fire and, and there's up erupting from it but that's you know but that's, that's a, the danger that's a very yeah. pivotal scene in the in the birds um so you know it's interesting because you hear about um with carpenter here howard hawks howard hawks howard hawks but it's interesting when you start really examining uh his films especially in the early days to see all the nods to Hitchcock, like how important Hitchcock was to him, whether it's the the, the naming of Sam Loomis, the Donald Pleasant's character, yeah. uh, being a nod to Psycho. Of course, like we said, Jamie Lee Curtis, casting Jamie Lee Curtis, having Janet Lee in this, all these nods to the birds. He does his own little Hitchcock cameo in the beginning, which he hates, <laughs> but he does. I completely forget that, forgot that's him, but he's at the beginning with Hal Holbrook. Uh, so it's... Um, yeah, it, it, it's there's a lot of nods to. I mean, you could like you said, you could pick apart a lot of his his inspirations. You could see clever, yeah. you know, his nods and stuff. The aforementioned Eastwood, I think he takes a lot of that from there yeah. too. With I've now in talking about this, you see a lot of the high plains drifter in here of the town, the the collective guilt, or even again play misty for me. Those aspects of of doing this quick shooting it on a very. I didn't realize how much of a shoestring kind of production crew he had. You know, it was just like us when we started this cast three hours ago at Philosito's house like that's the whole <laughs> that's really the whole crew we had yeah you know so it's just good uh, um so uh i think it, it you know it all comes it, it all wraps up really nice and turns out to be this really awesome you know uh story it, it it has a great ending it has that 
I think that was also a reshoot too. Was the final thing with Hal Holbrook, right? Didn't they bring him back for the little when the when Blake and his people come back to get Hal Holbrook in the final shot? Certainly uh, may have. Think, I mean, there's you know, certainly there was a the impact of the ending of the movie Carrie had. Uh, a, a, oh yes, was a was a was a was a pebble in, in the lake that caused ripple effects that made yeah. Uh, that to be a very popular device. So we get sure. a, a little bit of that with Halloween, less shocking, but uh, we certainly see that yeah. with uh, the end of uh, The Fog. We see it with the end of Friday the 13th, like this. Uh, you know. Escape from New York. <laughs> Not Escape from New York. Um, uh, Big Trouble Little China with the thing on the back of the truck. Yeah, but it's like definitely like uh, this... The violent shock thing was became a very oh yeah was a very big thing because of the success of Carrie and so we get yeah. that here and again what's brilliant about that is we don't see it I mean we see the action but we don't see the carnage but we hear it like that's yeah. the last thing we hear before like the theme starts and we watch the end credits so we actually hear like the impact well it's like when the they hit. grab that old lady the aunt aunt what's her face and pull her into the fog here. <laughs> That's <laughs> like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> so that's another thing, too. Was it Tommy Lee Wallace did the editing? Did he edit this? He was one of the editors, yeah. Yeah, I think the editing is great on this. The beginning when, you know, the, when you don't even realize when uh, Hal Holbrook's drinking in his little office and then the stone falls out, that quick cut. Stone falls out, he drops the radio, he drops his drink, radio goes on, and then they cut back to the long shot of what just happened. Yeah. Is that, you know, but it's so, you know, I think these cuts are very fluid and they're very impactful and they're very... Um, they command a lot of the scares. This is back when you get can get those jump scares. Um, the before we leave this, uh, any kind of speculation that just from your own mind of one of the scenes that always confused me, not in a way of the cinema logic of just what was going on is when she's sitting there with the body in the morgue. What do you think's happening there? Do you think so that this is just the pervasive evil of the of the you know that that guy's possess? Is he writing something like is it a help or is he going to kill her? Or, yeah, that's you know? a really good question. It is a bit of an oddity for the movie, isn't it? And I wonder if that because you don't see anybody else's possessed. Nobody, no, you don't have to worry about any of the bodies coming back. It but, does go against the logic of what's kind of established of the movie in a way. You're right, but I, it, no, but I mean, it could just be that also that it's the pervasive per, the pervasive pervasive evil of it yeah you know that they're yeah i don't know know. i would imagine that has to be one of the reshoots they probably like we need another scare at x mount (laughs) what at this the bodies (laughs) the bodies disappear don't they the two other like janet lee's husband who goes missing off the trawler and then the aunt whatever her name is we'll call her out in zelda (laughs) she goes away isn't uh they they you don't aside from this guy whose eyes have been gouged out in such a very like almost um H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, in the Mouth of Madness kind of, or, or Event Horizon kind of a way. Yeah, yeah. You know that, that then then you know uh, this is the only body that's found. You know, and then it's all true. the other allure, the other. I love the this. You know, the it looks like it's been underwater for a week, or this guy looks like he was underwater for a month, or there was rust on the. There's water in the engine, all that shit. You know, that's well, all great. Elements. That's a very. It's interesting because it's setting up like back when we did Halloween three, and we've done you know. Uh, dead deep red it does set up like a mystery and tom atkins mm. is trying to figure out what happened it's a very small part of the movie and it ends up getting like you know blown out of the water when shit starts hitting the fan he solves it really quick yeah 
Well, even the idea of her with the driftwood and that little thing about the albatross and that scary, uh, yeah, yeah. like an albatross, you know, and then it says what six months die on the thing and then all just catches fire. But it's definitely like, that. you know, Tom yeah. Atkins is like, no, I mean, we've gotten drunk plenty of times. We always find our way back to shore. Something's wrong. Yeah. He gets a boat. They go looking for it. He's trying to figure out what happened. And then as star- stuff starts to happen, he ends up being like... Because because he's the one uh, that's taken on this obsession of figuring out what happened to his friends, he's the one that's like receptive to like something's weirds happening. Yeah. So like go go check out fucking the guy the weather guy. Go to my house and save my kid. And he's listening to the radio. He's like, oh shit, we got to jump into action. Yeah. Well, and then Jamie Lee Curtis is with. She's very like trusting. Like I'm going to go with you and hang out the whole weekend with you. You know her yeah. hit, her about her hitchhiking thing at the beginning. It's very funny that it's it's very. He doesn't need too many. He gets sparked very quickly. He he becomes an active, like Gialloian. Yeah, you know, trying to solve this mystery, and then you know he's running because he's not even nice to the kid. He's like, "Get out of there, kid! Come on!" <laughs> and the, the kid, luckily, the kid responds to him. The kid just be like, could just start screaming at no, this guy. No, I'm not in his supposed window. to talk to strangers. Yeah, this guy breaks his window. He may think he's like part of this. He doesn't realize, you know, that could have been. You could have played that a different way. So, yeah, uh, yeah it's all it all the, the the movie. I think if we take all the technical aspects out. We could probably talk about the speculation of the story in the movie and all this for quite longer because yeah. I love it all. That's and that's a, a lore. I mean, I don't know why people look at this as like his under. You know, uh, Carpenter's not one of my favorite directors of all time, but of his movies, yeah. this is his top movies for me. Like Christine, another one I feel like is forgotten that we've also done a podcast on here. Yeah. Where you said in that podcast that you think now that that's starting to kind of finally get its due. Well, it's I, like, I, I think, think the that's the last. Great. I think that Christine is like the last of his underappreciated movies because just not a lot of people talk about it. But um, well, Ghost of Mars is going to come around. I'm telling you, <laughs> yeah, one of in 20 days. years, <laughs> you know, yeah. Uh, and this is interesting that I don't know if this is true or not, but in the research it said that they were thinking in the mid 90s when he did Round Body Bags of doing an anthology series. This is the loose speculation of with the fog kind of being the the act of cohesive that out of this the fog begets these other stories that become the anthology tales. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. that would have been fun. That's an know? idea that he's obviously he's wanted to do that because that was the kind of an idea for Halloween and then uh, to do a different start doing a different story every year uh, and then body yeah. bags and I know yeah. he had signed a deal like a year or two ago with Sci Fi Channel to do an anthology series for them although I don't think anything ever uh, amounted to anything with that especially now and you know the way covid is has kind of ended production for so many things so i don't know if that'll ever come to fruition but, he also, but it's very ec comics you know it's yeah very, we uh, also does him his wife sandy king have they do comics and some of them are kind of a, an anthology style uh comic series of horror and science fiction so we'll see yeah uh, that's all. It's it's all very interesting that the the whole trail of the uh, where that ends up going. And at the same time, you think of the mist, the the short story out of I think it's in Skeleton Crew. Uh, that was very popular at the time. And then I, like I said earlier how we should make a radio play yeah. out of this. The fog. I love the radio did, play they, of that. Yeah, they did the mist. They did a very famous radio play of that because of, and it also at the time of early eighties had like the quadraphonic surround sound, which was very new at the time. If you listen to it properly on headphones, say with speaker, I remember when I was little, like if you can get a copy, you you got to listen to the, out of the library. Uh, Cause uh, you know, it was the resurgence of like kind of the radio play. So 
it's interesting to have the mist come out around this time as well. I forget what year Skeleton Crew is, but I think it's around late 70s that that short stories come out. Uh, to have that as also a MacGuffin to have a horror story. Because in the mist, it's never even described what it is. I don't. Yeah. I think it's more, it might be more of the Lovecraftian big old uh, monsters from a different dimension coming out of that. Yeah, that's, a whole, other, that's a whole other episode. Yeah, but you do get a little nods to Lovecraft through this too, which is he ends up, you know, uh, going into great detail in, in the Mouth of Madness with his affinity. But you have what do they say the uh, the Bay they ne- name uh, they reference in that she's talking about is also a Lovecraft kind of um, uh, Arkham Reef. That's that's from a no, not Arkham Reef. There's another reference in it that that's that's a Lovecraft uh, reference. But you get that kind of in this that kind of horror which is really cool so uh yeah i think all this works and then to have the beginning of it setting the story up with with uh hausman yeah. giving in in his kind of maritime uh, attire with the watch and then the watch plays in also really well into the trailer into the promotion sure. the tv spots the radio spots the, the, the watch it's a timeline an hour oh uh, that was a little murky i guess for me is about that it's going to happen all from 12 to 1 the night of and then the next night 12 to 1 because these are the nights that it happened so uh but i love all that you know uh very very cool uh where does this stand for you in the in the carpenter uh uh catalog uh, i like it but I, I would probably put it middle of the pack for me i mean i'm very yeah. uh, much into um the the apocalypse trilogy of the thing prince of darkness and uh in the mouth of madness i love starman that's one of my favorites of his. Uh, so, yeah. I mean, I love it, but it's probably like somewhere in the middle, maybe towards the front of the line. But uh, for me, I, I, you know, I was never of that like this is not good or this is one of his, you know, this is not worthwhile. Ever since I saw it, I was like, I love it. I love that it's this easy comic ghost story. Like, I totally got instantly what he was trying to do with it. And I thought... Um, that was success. Like I, he was successful with that. Had I seen it, yeah, in you know, nineteen eighty, with not having seen any of his movies except for Halloween, I don't know how I would have felt for it, how I would have felt about it. But it did well. I mean, financially, it did, it did well. well. It um, was cost what one million to make, two or three million for promotion, and then it got domestically what twenty two million back, yeah. maybe. And then that's just had, domestically. And then he had a big hit with uh, Escape from New York. Yeah, uh, and then, and then he's making money off of TV with Elvis, as well as uh, Eyes of Lower Mars at this time. So he's still getting paychecks coming in. Yeah. So, so you said Escape from New York comes out, and then, then he's just kind of a rocketal. I mean, I think this is this for me is up. The, um, this the thing, Christine Escape uh, Assault from Precinct Thirteen, uh, are probably my top Carpenter movies, and that's I guess says something about my liking of him. You know, I don't Halloween for me is more down further yeah, and stuff. Me too. I don't you know I, I like I like yeah. Halloween a lot. I love Halloween, but I it's not mm-hmm. it's not in my it's not one of my favorites of his movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean you and I both have an affinity for memoirs. Yeah. Which I think is great too. So you know that's that's nice. So it's yeah it's anyway. It's good. It's good. It's fun. It's very nice. And one day I'll I will own the uh the novelization. I'm gonna get that damn thing. <laughs> anyway we've I, talked I, everybody's ear yeah. off. I think it's time to say goodnight. Yeah, so this is a, a start of yeah. Some you'll get you'll you guys will get exclusive stuff that won't be available to the regular um, Saturday night movie sleepover listeners. So we hope you like it. It'll either be movies like this or we'll do 
conversations, sidecasts, or just discussions, or maybe we'll talk about other things or an yeah. interview. Who knows? We don't have a set schedule but, uh, for how often we're going to do it yet, but uh, we're still figuring out the whole Patreon thing. So we appreciate everybody's patience as yeah. we figure out how we now uh, work this new kind of medium and outlet for the show. So we're still working on trying yeah. to figure out how to do it and how to get it to you. And then also the, uh, the merch, we have the merch as well. People are asking for some stuff, you know, some kids shirts we might end up doing as well. And maybe a hoodie too. We don't know, or if we have the, so check out the site for them. And we, then you guys get a special discount too, for, for being a Saturday night movie sleepover. Uh, musketeer musketeers <laughs> patrons patrons our patrons yeah so you know uh and then also that's the other thing you know uh uh you know we have all that we have the the pillow we have the, the blanket <laughs> you could you could bring all that with you to the sleepover with your sleeping bags and your official onesies. sleepover gear yeah we have all of our gear you know uh we're one away we'll start getting fanny packs and stuff we'll be good to go and Anyway, this was a lot of fun. Uh, we appreciate yeah. everybody who was uh, generously subscribed and donated to the show. Uh, we really appreciate it. And so this was a little gift for you specifically. And uh, we have another Halloween-centric horror uh, extravaganza movie coming up very soon. Uh, we mentioned earlier we're, we're covering the uh, controversial Poltergeist in our next proper uh, distributed episode. But then uh, don't worry, it's a long one. So, uh, <laughs> and that, you know, that might probably come out within maybe next, even a little bit longer week. than this, but not much. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, and that, uh, so that's fun. And, you know, as we always, we don't have to bore you with everything, but thank you for checking all of our stuff out and what we do on the side, as well as the, uh, you know, our the podcast proper and all that. And, you know, we're on social media. So thank you for you guys for your donation and what you do. And we'll, we'll hopefully make it your, your, make your wild or make it your wild. If that's yeah. yeah. Right that, that, uh, so. If you want to follow me on social media, it's at score to death. Uh, and also, of course you can check out the book score to death conversations with some of Harris grace composers on Amazon, other outlets or for me directly at score to death.com score to death. Two is on its way. Hopefully by Christmas, we should be uh, hopefully be out as a can be your Christmas gift for all your loved ones, as John Pizzarelli would say, buy in bulk. And uh, other than that, you know, uh, I occasionally do a couple of guest spots here and there. Um, only if I don't have to do any prep. That's you know, that's my requirement now because <laughs> of all the prep we do for this show. But uh, and of course, you can check out all of the everything Dion Bay has got going on. Oh uh, yeah, uh, uh, Blood in the Streets you can get on Amazon or any place you buy books. It's paperback, ebook, and audiobook. Uh, and then I have uh, I'm co-starring in a little movie called Stand on It coming out soon uh, by John Schneider, written, directed, starring uh, is a homage to Smokey and the Bandit. If you're a Smokey and the Bandit fan, that'll be out by the end of 2020. Uh, and I'm, there's a nice little music video on YouTube called My Name Is Roy, which is a very good. Uh, fun country truck driving song in the style of uh, Devil Went Down to Georgia, and I make a couple appearances in the music video. And then uh, next year, I will hopefully have out my new book, Morris P.I., a uh, 40s private detective kind of yarn 
uh, which is a fun Indiana Jones rocketeer meets kind of a Chinatown uh, fun thing. So we'll have that coming to you. So, And then you can always check us out on our usual places, like we just said, you know, all, all of us on social media. And sooner than later, we're going to be up on YouTube, which will be a whole other fun extravaganza as well. So, uh, again, thank you, everyone, for your participation. And uh, thank you for being such supporters. Of, yes, uh, of, we appreciate the support. You guys are great. Yeah. And I guess uh, the last thing to say is, later. Thank <laughs> you.